Well, hello again, my friends. Fancy seeing you here. Welcome to the next episode of the podcast. A cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. On this episode, we're joined by our Alaskan friend, the one and only AK Bean Brains. Talking all things genetics, new school, old school, and everything else. This episode, as always, was brought to you by the one and only Seeds Here Now. Your only seed bank that offers a guarantee both on satisfaction and germination. There's no reason to shop elsewhere. They've got all the best. Hit them up. Likewise, 420 Australia and Organic Gardening Solutions. Your two number ones in Australia holding down the fort. Everything from apparel to grow needs. Get it there first. And a quick shout out to our regenerative farming friends at Dragonfly Earth Medicine. Let's get into it. Alrighty, so a big thank you and welcome to our first guest from the final frontier, an extremely nice guy I've had the pleasure of hanging out with a few times now, AK Bean Brains. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thanks for having me on. It's uh, good to finally do this. Like you said, after we've met a couple times, we should have already been, uh, you know, fishing or something, but the interview's uh, past due, so I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you on, my friend. So first question for today, what are you currently smoking on? Funny thing is, it's the same thing that, uh, you know, I had a lot of at the uh, Emerald Cup. Do you remember what we were smoking, that uh, uh, Platinum Huckleberry cookie? Do you happen to remember that? I do, fondly. Oh, good. Cause, but, uh, yeah, I happen to have a little bit of that, and I, I'm just picking that as a really good favor. It's really good smoke. I love Dynasty, so um, his smoke just stands out. Hell yeah, I can definitely agree with you on that one. Let's let's loop back to that one a bit later, because the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what was your first experience with cannabis? That's funny too. There, uh, you know, I was a bad kid, so about uh, fifth grade, when uh, you know all the kids are starting to score cigarettes and stuff, a friend of mine's dad had a little uh, wasn't convenience store; it was like a country store, and he lifted a like cartons of the worst thing in the world was I think camels or whatever it was. It was horrible, strong uh, tobacco. And we'd get it together after school and, you know, smoke a couple, but it turned me green and they, uh, they tended to keep smoking. And I found out that, um, you know, pot at the time was like real weedy and it's around, I think it's probably uh, right about 80 a little bit earlier than 8078 but uh you know my mom had a friend and uh he'd give me ounces or not at the you know they called it lids at the time it was five to ten bucks a lid and i'd have him uh he'd get me to roll and clean it up and roll like you know 35 40 uh doobies at, out of uh out of a lid he'd give me a one or two so i smoked that and it was just such swaggy weed i never ever really got high and uh, I thought I was getting high, just like a uh, real poor bud every time. But I guess I was around 12 years old, and I babysat for a friend, uh, my mom's friends. And I don't want to be stereotypical, but they were bikers. And uh, 
they had some bud. They knew that I'd already smoked, and they said it would be cool to try it. They gave me a bud, and it was chocolate tie for all I can tell from everything I've ever seen later in my life. It was real chocolate tie. It was all uh, basically right off the tie stick. And uh, I pulled the seeds out of it, and I smoked it, but it stuff, that hit me. And I was, like, euphorically high for four or five hours. Shouldn't have been babysitting the kids because it was, like, super potent. So then I realized that uh, what pot really was. Yeah, wow. And has that always left that as kind of having a little fond spot in your heart? Do you want to ever go back to that? Uh, it really does because uh, it's a rarity, though. Chocolate tie... And that certain uh, flavor that was on that, it was a leathery, tobacco-y, chocolatey flavor. And um, if I could have just had had the knowledge or any kind of sense to keep those seeds, man, it's insane how many, uh, you know, pounds of seeds have gone down into the waste because at the time all the import was just seed bud and we never uh, thought we would want the genetics. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, just as a little random side question, do you think it's true that there ever was tie coming in that had like been altered with opium or anything like that? You always hear the whispers. This, uh, I don't know that economically would be viable uh, for them to do that, but I do believe it had to have happened because there was, uh, it was talked about for sure. I do believe there was opium uh, dusted. Uh, it said opium dipped, you know, is what they call it. But it was it was basically uh, a very potent psychoactive uh, product. So uh, I never really got my hands on it, but I know people that they swear that it was uh, certainly the real deal and it came in. Yeah, definitely. I've heard an anecdotal story from a friend who said that one of the only times he'd ever greened out was from uh, some, like, you know, some Thai stick. And and to me, that it always gave a little bit of credence to the idea because a lot of people, when they first have opioids, they vomit. Yeah, certainly uh, it, it'll it take over your whole uh, system. So you're not ready to be hit by a truck and that's what hits you. Yeah, so with all that being said, have you ever looked at some of the kind of notable Thai hybrids and thought, oh, I want to get into that? Like, for example, maybe Hayes, given it was like 50% Thai at the end. You know, it's always been a big challenge up here for uh, outdoor growing is really a challenge up here. So our summers are harsh and short, so... If you're going to do light depth in greenhouse, you uh, you have to have a program for it. It's just devoted to it for Colombians or ties. So uh, it's not an impossible thing, but most that's one of the things I've put off the most. I've hardly ever grown a, a very very little haze due to that. It's hard to it's hard to grow it up here. But I've I've always uh, been super fond of that and want to relive it, and I've. I've smoked like Bodie's, uh, you know, really good 16 week tie at Emerald. And um, it's got a really similar high, but it wasn't that exact same thing that I'd smoked before. So, yeah, I'd always like to relive that. Yeah, certainly. I think I know the tie you were talking about. It was that, that pearl tie with like the alternating calyxes. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of yellowish and uh, brown, uh, not yellowish, but um, amberish, I should say, and uh, brown. And it was just hemp strings tied onto a onto a uh, bamboo splint, is what it was. So they they tore it off for me and actually gave it to me, and I broke it up. But it 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 had uh, qualities and tastes that just I don't know that'll ever be refound. So. Yeah, I'm chasing that rabbit for sure. Yeah, it definitely sounds very interesting. Let's take it back though. Let's start off at that point where you tried the tie. From that point onwards, what made you or were the factors that led to you then deciding to grow yourself and how long did it take before you did do that? It took me a little while, about three years before I uh, realized that you could grow at that point. There wasn't a ton of information. I probably accidentally sprouted a seed and uh, went from there. But at the time, after 75, the uh, here in Alaska, the, there was a Supreme Court decision with the state of Alaska Supreme Court, and it was called the Raven uh, decision, and it legalized uh, personal use cannabis here. So there was a lot of uh, ornamental kind of like, shrubbery seeds being thrown out and you could see people growing uh leaf type of plants they never flower because our summer's about 21 22 hours and sunlight just blaring and then it'll like shut off to nothing and freeze so the plants will just start to sex and maybe three weeks in the flower they'll just freeze up it'll be solid winter from then so the uh, i was always thinking about growing and it took me about three years before I realized it was just something easy to do. Yeah, okay. And so a lot of people outside the States may not be aware that Alaska legalized or decriminalized growing very early on compared to, say, California. And commonly I get it here told in the context of, yeah, they were almost trying to invite people up there, you know, get the population boosted. Was that the reason behind it and did it work? You know, it was kind of like opened up to be a free free state and um just uh, it, it wasn't like a move that a lot of people would have took took this took up i don't think but uh it was viewed as more of a freedom type of a state and uh what it what the what happened with the supreme court ruling is it said that the right to privacy was stronger than the fact that marijuana was illegal. So you could have four ounces in your house and up to 16 plants. So it was just like so common. And uh, when you're having the mindset of it being legal, they did have illegalities on it, which was transportation and selling of it. But you could gift it. You could never transport it. So, you know, they'd get you on that, uh, which was really silly. But it was so commonplace to just grow that... Uh, Nobody. There was a paranoia for sure because there was parent. There was federal uh, rules that, that came into play. After twenty four plants, you would be into like federal felony land, and uh, you just didn't want to go there. Yeah, most certainly. So, what was your first setup like back then when you first started? Well, outdoor sun, and uh, I knew about light depth at the time, so you'd try to just get it in in September and start covering it up for three weeks advanced before the weather really turns on you. And uh, you'd 
and I wasn't. We had crappy lights, and and uh, certainly halides had just come out, but I didn't have a penny for them, so I used the eight foot uh, high output fluorescent lights, which was pretty common grow light back then, and uh, super inefficient and. You'd get real stretchy plants, and besides, the genetics were, you know, I tried to grow a Colombian inside and end up being 12 feet tall sideways, and uh, <laughs> I realized real quickly that we had to have something better going on than that, so it, it I learned very quickly. So, what type of genetics did you look to that would be more well-suited to the environment? Well, there was plenty of... Uh, you know, by, by mid-80s, there was plenty of indica that was going around. So up here especially, there's always been a ton of local indicas that were never named. And uh, if you were going to grow indoor in a light depth, you would get something like the Northern Lights. Uh, Northern Lights, number one, was super common from about 80 to 85. And uh, there was others that weren't named, but they were just about the same three foot to four foot tall maximum uh, b- bushy Christmas tree shaped uh, solids really solid could support them uh, you know they support uh, their their bud which was heavy and it'd always be mold resistant and um, tended to be just pretty good straight up easy to grow indoors so that's that's what we kind of aim for pretty quickly. This this might be a silly question to some people, but I've always wondered, you know, given the name Northern Lights, do you think that there was some sort of breeding effort put into the actual Northern Lights up around the Alaska slash Canadian area, or do you think it was purely just a marketing name? It had to have been a uh, a marketing name. I do, I think it was developed in the Northwest in the Seattle area much more so than it was ever past uh, British Columbia. So I don't think it was up here. It only it only made its way up here. But uh, by the time I saw it, it was a mainstay. So the the name stuck, and uh, it really, really, uh, probably one of the best things that ever happened to the cannabis and that that we've come across so far. Yeah, most certainly. So, let's fast forward a little bit. When did you decide to have a whack at breeding yourself, and what was the first thing you ever made? Was it an accident, or was it purposeful? First time I ever tried to breed now would probably have been, um, I've been about eight, 18 or 19. I just thought uh, thought it was a way to advance any, uh, any way to get genetics, because there just wasn't seed stock available. So, I would take whatever uh so-and-so's affy from from usually it was like trailer park genetics and uh i would cross it over to whatever other one might have you know a red petioles uh stem and uh i would just start make crosses just by cool looks and smells right off the bat that was kind of like my goal try to breed the best of the best of whatever we could find and uh give it a test run that next batch and what was the consumer market like at the time? Like, did you do it because you knew that it would be unique, people would want to try it, or there wasn't that much push from consumers to, say, develop new things? You know, up here, uh, there was no market such like that. Um, everybody grew their own smoke, or you would bum it off of somebody that uh, 
that happened to have plenty excess of smoke. Uh, so it was it was pretty clandestine gardens, but everybody knew each other and they knew where there was a supply of, of bud around. And we, uh, they really, I don't even remember even selling any bud until like the late '80s. You know, it was it was pretty unique to where we were just growing it. Okay, so the the scene sounds like it was kind of focused around the grower. What were the things people were most interested in? Was it like as a grower, were people just interested in the biggest yielding or was it more a quality focus? Yeah, it was definitely, uh, I'd say a lot of it had to have been with yield because nobody, uh, shit, there was a lot of, still a lot of people not having uh, nice big grow rooms. There was a lot of uh, basements that were dug out, of, you know, when they're growing under the, the rafters and... Uh, you might get a five-foot ceiling out of that. So people were growing good stocky-ass plants and try to get good yield. But I don't think that we ever, uh, never, ever gave up but had just quality. I don't think nobody ever looked any other direction but quality. It sounds like the dream almost. <laughs> well, it's kind of crazy. It's crazy because people did focus their own goals for their own purposes and uh, everybody basically wanted to make themselves happy. So before all the competitive uh, brand naming and uh, so-and-so's bud is better than so-and-so, it was like a cooperative thing, and people were really just trying to extend the good feeling of the 70s, kind of. Yeah, okay. And so were there any breeders at that time who you were kind of looking up to or you were inspired by, or was it still a bit too early for that? Uh, still a little bit early for that. There was no advertised breeders. In that the very first that I had ever heard of was Navelle Schoenmacher over in uh, Amsterdam in 88. It, it opened up you know, a whole new world when I realized that there was genetics that could be uh, just picked up from a collector. Yeah, and so this is a question I, I love to ask people. Where do you hold Neville in the hierarchy of breeders throughout history? Is he numero uno for you? You know, that's... Uh, I'd say uh, yes, because when we were first involved with him, my partner, who's one of the best guys in the world, uh, and I don't deal with him and haven't for 30 years or better, he, uh, we, he would handwrite letters to... Neville, and uh, he would. It would be a you know it might be a two three month process to get a return reply, but he was steering us and uh, telling us, and uh, he's like a like such a great mentor. And uh, so in that aspect, he didn't just collect and breed, but he wanted to spread the knowledge. So I would say he is. Yeah, most certainly. I love that little bit of Aussie pride in that question. But um, so something I wanted to touch on quickly was when I spoke to you in person, you mentioned this idea of like up in Alaska, you guys were very isolated and you kind of were okay with that in a way. Would you mind expanding a little more on that? We were, you know, isolated in, in quite a bit of ways to where we didn't get imports. And when they did make it up here, I would say it'd be a 10-year hiatus, and it might have made itself all the way around the world before it actually hit to Alaska or 
the local region and outlying you know towns so it was um it was well proven by the time it got here or it would have just faded out and uh when you think about our uh, our isolation it it made us a lot better growers because there would be like there's still things that were developed up here uh, multiple named things that are just like legends and still up here and um, the same old heads have got them and still don't generally put it out or even care to and um it's amazing that the mentality is is still nearly the same for 30 and 40 years the people have uh kind of kept the main the same mindset so it's it's a unique thing certainly and so do you think that's still the case does do the the hype strains make it up there or is there still that time lag no now is uh like you and i are you know different sides of the world it's uh technology is just here you, you know i i a couple of years ago taken uh live cuts to emerald and was actually stopped by the tsa they are flagged i should say and then our airport police wanted to interview me and it got down to where they when they wanted to know how much flour i had and how much concentrate and then they wanted to know the weight of all the hundred seed packs i carried and i i had come up with the right answers you know he asked me where my medical grow permit was and i told him was supposed to stay in the growing you're not supposed to copy it or it's it's in uh, invalid and everything just was the right answer and i was under the weight limit for carrying and then he just says okay well what about the live cannabis plants and i said well as far as i'm concerned the law says you can carry six plants and the tsa says whatever the state legal limit is is what you can carry so he you know he ran me for priors i had no priors and he's like okay well if this is all the medication you need then we'll have a you know have a good trip and he just like let us straight go on our way so at that point and just like you can go to emerald if you're brave enough to buy uh you know clones that are available down there uh you can just straight pick up any strain and bring it back hype strain or uh maybe heirloom or and then clone shipping is not a uh big thing now it tends to be that anybody that has access to good genetics you can just get it shipped straight to you and now uh the door is wide open for genetics up here every day i think there's 20 new strains coming up here it's interesting you mention that because i'm not sure if it was you i was talking to about this or someone else but they said there was a little bit of finickiness with the clone shipping compared to, say, other states in that, say, you sent it on the Friday and it was going to sit somewhere over the weekend. Not only is that, you know, not ideal for the clone, but given if it was winter time, it could potentially kill the clone. Is that a bit of an overstated fact or is that very much the reality of the situation? It's pretty common that um, you could run into small glitches. I've had, you know, half a dozen or more uh, packages that would maybe hit during the California two or three years in a row, man, they were hit with the fires. Then they were hit with drought and flood and uh, they'd shut down County roads and certain outlying towns. They might not get a three day priority package. You could generally send a clone three days safely in a clone porter or a clone shipper. And 
they'll make it. But on the seventh day, they uh, don't like to be in the dark that long. And I've had I've had them just one after the other going to even uh, like Bob Hemp Hill and the Nature Farm, and they'd get them and they'd be just seven days. They'd be yellow as hell and droopy and ready just to die. No way you're gonna not gonna talk them back into life. And then in the summertime, I think it's better to ship in the cool season, truly. We don't have bad luck in the cool. In the summertime, it tends to sweat the plants a lot more. So if you're going to send them dry tech, just snips or fresh cut tips, you know, the dry tech, it works to a certain degree. But if they start to sweat, it'll just cook the foliage and it'll be wilted lettuce or worse every time. Yeah, certainly. I guess it, it brings its own challenges. You mentioned a minute ago that some really old school, really awesome strains were developed up in Alaska and they're still being held by the locals up there. It brings us to the question that everyone knew was coming. What's the story behind Alaskan Thunderfuck or Matanuska Thunderfuck? Yeah, we know, we know that was coming. But uh, there's a lot of stories behind it. So the experience that I've had with it was the 1970s and the mid-70s quite a few uh, Northern California Emerald Triangle uh, people, whether they were coming back from Vietnam at that exact point or didn't, uh, at the end of the war about seven, you know, 74 they didn't want to go into that conflict, so some of them went to Canada and some of them ditched out and came up here and it's a, it's a I'm not going to say there's a bunch of draft dodgers that just that filled our state, but there was a lot of people that were, you know, patriotic-minded, but didn't want to go and uh, fight for some political cause that had no no win to it. So they they uprooted and they came up here. And what they brought was um, some bud that was, you know, it could have been originally Burmese or crosses of their import bud that they were growing down in Trinity and, and Humboldt, but uh, it didn't work up here. So. Within, I'd say, four or five years, there was no more of that tall uh, structural uh, equatorial, I'd say, lowland type of uh, flower up there. Was, they would basically outcross it to the best, fastest, shortest, most controllable grow plant there is. So a lot of the sativa genetics went out with it by 1980. There was, there was hardly any of it to be found. Interesting. And so what's the plant like itself? Is it is it more of a stocky one as you just implied? And what's the kind of the flavor and the high like? Ours stands as a, we have a very old cutting that uh, I started my job currently right now in 87. And my foreman at the time is where I got this. And he had it at the time growing in a Quonset hut. So it puts it at over 33, 34 years old. And uh, the plant as it stands, these guys never cut. It was a cutting, and it's amazing. They had been taking bottom cuts for decades on the plant, and uh, it started getting a lot of generational drift and uh, getting really sluggish and uh, woodier and woodier. And they didn't have any common sense to, like, regenerate that plant in the sun or, uh, you know, try to advance the upper growth and take cuts and get better healthier cuts so about long time they grew it like that and it uh you know it's an indica and it once it or not an indica it grows like a, like an affy type of 
a plant and uh, it'll get real thick solid base that could go to two and three inches even indoor it gets this monster base on it and it supports great great amount of bud it's uh, you know super crystally and it smells like um, sweet wine and sweet chocolate it's kind of a crazy combination because it's like sangria wine and uh, Hershey's chocolate bars with the terps are on it and it tastes like that too so um, it's a real unique plant but I've, I've delving into it now by uh, making back crosses of itself and I dug into it and we're finding that the uh, the sativa hybrids are still in there just it it laid dormant in there nobody really wanted to deal with it now there's a point to where I'd sent it to, uh, you know, a couple of guys to play with, like uh, Dead Panhead and Two-Tone Willie, and they uh, came out with a lot more hybrid types, not as much as the standing affy that she is. So, And I have, too. I've come up with really, really cool hybrids, that, and I've even pulled pure skunk out of it. I've collected a male that's just the heaviest pure skunk. So... Um, it's, it's crazy to think what could really be dug up out of the Matt Nuska. So I guess kind of the last question on this one is, do you think that it was kind of developed in like a communal sense, kind of in the way that like skunk was initially developed? And if you had to take a guess, what do you think are some of the genetics in there? I mean, you mentioned the Burmese and the Afi. I would just equate it to being uh, pure uh, Trinity County and Humboldt weed. The flavors are right there, real, real close. When I used to, shit, let's see, 1980, you know, Humboldt, we would just get bud called Humboldt, at San, and uh, it was just a really killer sweet affy is basically what it was, and you'd get some uh, interesting terps every which way, but it wasn't super skunky or anything. It was just like great, great flower, like the, like the best cushions that you can get now. And I think that's uh, half of the genetics. And then uh, there there has to be some uh, Thai in there and Burmese because the what what's coming out of it now is uh, is pretty uniquely different than the way she stands. Yeah. Okay. Well, if we jump to another kind of old Australian that I know you've got in the collection, tell us a little bit about your cat piss. I wasn't aware that you actually had that one, but I am aware that they tend to, there's a lot of them basically. Your cat piss probably isn't the same as someone else's. So, would you mind giving us a bit of backstory on your one? Yeah, the uh, cat piss just came our way from imported Puna bud that came shrink wrap from probably the very first seal meal in the world. Uh, right around 85, we were getting just uh, some import bud from Hawaii, of all things. And uh, it was some of the best flour that we've ever smoked, too. Real comparable to, I would say, the, uh, the what we would call Humboldt. It was just a fantastic... Uh, indica though it was a kush so um but it had the craziest terps to it so we just bred it to northern lights and uh for years we had it and it is still a super unique type of a plant it's uh it for whatever reason 
grows much more sativa-ish. They'll have a very long middle finger that's about one-third longer or two up to a half, twice as long as all the other fingers in the pattern. And um, it'll grow into this uh, crazy sativa-looking bush. And uh, I've got it in a probably F2, F3, and then BXs and BX2, 3, and 4, but I recently, you know, outcrossed it to a really rank uh, cat piss that came from California, El Jefe Gardens. Uh, he has um, a haze that was total cat piss, uh, indica haze that uh, is just about, it'll make your eyes water when you're dealing with it when you're uh, in the flower form. So it's it's really pungent, ammoniated. And ours is slightly sweeter, but super ammoniated, so we couldn't help but you know, put it together, and uh, I think there needs to be a lot more of the old-fashioned uh, combinations of that terpene being brought back. Our Hawaiian did have real unique thin leaves. The leaf isn't thick like a like a indica leaf. It's much thinner, uh, and uh, it's a lighter green by far than most any indica. But uh, the bud that we did get for certain was uh, really good indica. And that's what they called it, too, was Hawaiian indica. So I've always just called it the Hawaiian indica. But uh, as I'm getting to do a lot more digging into it, I'm coming up with a lot more sativa hybrids. Yeah, okay. Very interesting. Quick shout out to El Jefe. Great guy. One thing I wanted to ask you, though, was that, you know, this this idea of having these clones for a while is pretty common within your collection. How do you keep these clones for so long? You know, it seems so common for people to just lose clones over the years, and you've got like 30 plus year old clones. You have to uh, farm. You keep, you keep about five... Uh, plants with your uh, trusted group and hopefully uh, everybody can cover each other's bases because certainly we've all we've all had situations where we've lost our mothers and uh, my biggest advantage to saving genetics was not necessarily uh, keeping a clone alive the whole time I, I have a lot of old 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 cuttings but I've got a lot of old, old, old seeds. We would produce it in the late 80s and early 90s, and I would just preserve it. And I can go back on it, you know, at any point in time and generally have a very high success rate just to reproduce what we were dealing with 30, 30 plus years ago. Yeah, okay. So on the topic of 30 plus years ago, let's talk about that epic old school Northern Lights freezer beans. I know you've got a few different freezer beans, but fill me on on this one because I believe your one was different to the one Coastal worked with. It is different um, and it's the same too. What mine is is uh, 85, just the standby uh, typical Northern Lights one that was going around. And it was uh, just fantastic in every way. I don't think that I still think if it came out today, it would just beat the shit out of cookies. Everybody would just go, "Wow, such a complex uh, old school high to it." And then the flavors and uh, the look and bag appeal covers anything that the cookies and all of the thousand cookie crosses are. So uh, I had the '85 cut, and then in '89 we purchased the uh, skunk. I mean, sorry, the NL1 from uh, from Sensi, and it was one of our four picks that year in 89. 
and it's a three times inbred. So where his was, uh, you know, back crossed to be extremely fast, 45 days, super stout, super resistant to uh, molds, and uh, it's almost a bulletproof type of a plant. And uh, I crossed the male to my female cutting, and we just had seeds of it. So at the, you know, I'd grow out the seeds for sure, but I crossed it. I'd put them up to F2 and F3, and then I'd frozen a ton of it. And uh, what I think that uh, coastal Kagu's um, NL1 is the same thing. I, I'm thinking it's the exact same 85 cut that I had, but uh, different phenotype. His has a lot of the terp terpenoline and uh, spray paint phenos, but it still has the same. Uh, everything on it is identical. The resin, the look, the structure. Um, it's uh, it's a real unique type of plant that. It's so strong and dominant that uh, the single-stemmed capabilities can override everything that I've bred it to. I don't think that I've ever seen anything ever be able to override the, the NL1 genetics. Yeah, wow. It says something for dominance and line breeding, right? So a question related to this I wanted to ask is when you were doing these early seed increases or back crosses, F2s, etc., did you do kind of more open pollination types of things or were you just selecting one male, kind of how more modern genetics is done? We've always open pollinated if we can. I mean, if there's only one male, you know, if you end up with one male and you're going to reproduce anything, you're going to use that male. So I've, I've been at that point, but every time that I can open it up, I won't open it up and use the weak genetics there might be a couple real shitty males that just maybe they might not even be genetically inferior it might have been that they were lagging because they cracked later or they got more shade or but i generally would take like the top five to seven uh, males every single time i'm also looking for you know a lot of high qualities lots of different qualities in the males but opening up a uh, population is a lot better to me than to to isolating it with one super male yeah of course of course and so do you remember the types of things you were selecting for back then and can you contrast that for us in terms of what are the traits you like to select for in your male nowadays there's a big difference the uh we were pretty idiot idiotic i should say on our selections on our uh, in the 89 90 years because I didn't realize the dominance in the hemp flower. Everything that we're basically dealing with, if you're going back, you know, 10,000 years, it's going to come down from uh, a fiber wild uh, strain of, of uh, flower. And uh, I realized and learned a whole lot in the first couple of years because we would pick a super male. It's what we call a super male, the male that wants to dominate over everything. It'll just be a foot taller it'll be about a week faster and in some cases twice as tall and three weeks faster than other males and we would think that male would just be the tits and we would grab it and breed it and uh, I realized after three generations four generations of doing that we had actually degraded the flower to becoming so dominant and that's you'd get long internodals uh, stretch 
uh, it just basically was just reverting back to hemp. And in the fourth generation of picking a super male like that, it basically, I think you can turn a plant's genetics faster than anybody thinks you can. In seven, seven generations, you can make a plant just just be whatever you want it to be. That's That's really what we've come up with. Yeah, yeah, it's a commonly held view that, you know, if humans were to disappear off the planet and we left cannabis to do its own thing, we'd we'd get back to hemp pretty quickly. So I guess that backs that idea. Yeah, and on the contrast view, I uh I'm I've got a lot more insight on what uh you know what is what. Each strain's gonna be a lot lot of difference in their uh values and I uh I realize that you wanna get certain males for certain things and i do everything a whole different way now so uh, it's always just every day seems to be a you know a new chapter and a learning experience which is one of the things i really love about it yeah it sounds very humbling like a lot of breeders say so let's get a little bit specific what type of uh attributes or kind of um tests if you want to call it that do you do on your males are you like a stem rub guy are you more of like looking at the root zone what things help you identify a quality male i know most people are really really big on stem rub um my opinion on stem rub is that it's valuable but it uh it changes and you you might find uh, day-to-day changes in males so you can't go by stem rub so i would just go on uh structure uh the health of the plant uh, stem rub i will generally uh breed a plant and grow it completely out and uh, instead of maybe reverse a male with floral or some other hormonal uh, spray to test to see what type of uh, uh, female type of traits it will throw like the uh, what pheno it can possibly throw for terps and and the amount of crystal and structure that's one way to check but i just like to grow a male out and generally they at the sixth to tenth week they're going to go fully ripe on you and uh, show you exactly what's available in the male so i I probably have five different real big criteria that uh, they all go go into play but definitely like to see the final product finished out yeah, we've heard this sentiment echoed by a few different breeders, and I think we've only really had two, 707 Seed Bank and, uh, oh gosh, the name is escaping me of the other breeder who used the Florel and reversed the male like what you said. My always my question I love to ask in relation to that is, do you find that the terpene profile you get off that reverse male is quite accurate and indicative of what it will pass on? You know that's a good one right there because you're inducing it. So uh, you can change you can change uh, vegetables and fruit so much with any amount of uh, hormones. So it's really not a super fair test, is why I don't use the uh, the floral. I mean, just think how much you can change ripening of any fruit or vegetable with ethylene and uh, gibberellic acids and. Uh, it's right on the same line, so it's better. To, I think it's better to go onto a natural test than to rely on a, a hormonal change that you created. 
Yeah, okay. And so on the polar end of the spectrum, what do you feel is the role of labs within breeding? Do you like to utilize any of their services or do you still kind of like to use first principles? Well, I was... uh I'm a big advocate of uh, analytical testing. I mean, I I think it's it's very very um, important. Uh, it's also a lot of times not uh, financially viable. So, is uh, since we are like crazy addicted to uh, producing new strains and wanting to test them out at eighty to one hundred fifty dollars per test which is real cheap compared to what i hear there's there's very high testing rates at other places ours is is relatively inexpensive but when you're doing 10 ter- 10 terpene tests or 10 uh potency and cannabinoid profiles it's fifteen hundred dollars out of your pocket just to get an answer so it only makes sense so much but um I would, if I had an unlimited amount of money, I would probably put a lot of stock into it. Yeah, okay. And so maybe a bit of a redundant question, but have you ever utilized the whole, um, like, you know, finding out the sex of seedlings when they're still just got their little petioles or do you just think like, nah, just go old school, they'll show themselves soon enough? That's funny because we talk about that. Quite a few people are starting to utilize the... uh, the different testing services i know phylos has it and farmer uh farmer john i think is one of them uh, or farmer freeman and uh i have never done that i i prefer to just grow the male because i i consider that there's some uh genetic potential it might only be five percent or something but i still want to kind of like roll the dice and see what's there i do uh i have done about 80 analytical tests though on different plants so i'm like i said i'm a big i'm a big supporter of it i'm just not uh financially capable of constantly testing everything but when i do narrow something down and i have to know we we test it yeah yeah good good sentiment definitely so when you are testing out some seeds you've made how many seeds do you like to pop to get a good idea of what's going on within the line I like what I like and what I can do are way different. I like to do 300 at like a minimum and then I get a pretty fair answer. Um, at a minimum 10 and that doesn't give you a, a whole lot of uh, answers unless your genetics are like super inbred or uh, if they're so focused and you know exactly what they are, you can get a lot you can get a lot out of uh, smaller batches. Yeah, definitely. So this is a bit of a devil's advocate question, but let's just say you had a strain that you were liking the results in terms of what you were finding inside of it, but you rather consistently found that you get a Hermy every, say, three packs. So, you know, one really definitive Hermy every 30 seeds. Does that, like, rule it out for you, or do you still think that there's potential? You just maybe warn people that that is a possibility. Like, how do you feel about that one? That is a good question because I think that super worthy genetics would be, uh, you know, I don't think that that's going to be a problem. One in thirty, if you are, uh, if the people that are getting the genetics from you are wanting it because it's such a good plant, they are going to deal with it, and uh, 
you know, a bunch of people that don't really know what they're doing and uh, grow kind of improperly or stress their gardens too much and might have high occurrences of Hermes, I would I would just talk to them ahead of time, and uh, which is near impossible if they're buying it out of a seed bank. But if you tell them ahead of time what's going on, that's really not a bad number. But if the genetics are just mediocre and you're getting that, it's totally unacceptable. It, it should be standout genetics or uh, the answer is no. Well, that brings us to an interesting question. How do you feel about strains that have a little bit of controversy surrounding them? You know, I'm not super familiar because I'm not a... Uh, I'm not the type of guy that follows any drama, and uh, for a lot of time I've dealt only with certain genetics, so I wouldn't uh, necessarily study or know a lot of people's creations or what they're famous for or what they hurt somebody else's butt over, or, um, uh, you know, I just don't keep up with it. And I get told this by a couple of very knowledgeable young people that are like strain fiends, and they, they just know everything, so I... Uh, I have no problem probably using somebody's genetics like that, but I would want to go back to the person that they double-crossed, and uh, I'd be straight with them first because I'm not the guy that goes out. Uh, uh, I'll go out of this world with my name. You know, that's basically it. I'm not going to go around being talked bad about it. So I have no problem working certain lines, but... Uh, I would avoid it if it's just too much controversy. I don't see the value in it. Yeah, most certainly. I mean, kind of the most high-profile incidence of that is ResDog. Are you familiar with that case? And would you use ResDog's genetics if you had something you liked? That is a real good question there, too. I am I'm getting old enough to quit being so spiteful, but... I was for my whole life the type that would cut off my nose to spite my face. So I'm going to avoid a lot of situations and not uh, not go to that point. But I knew all about what happened with ResDog. And then uh, so that gives me a kind of a low opinion of the whole thing. And uh, somebody had sent me a pack of his uh, AJ Sour Diesel V3. So I grow this shit out. Two of them are basically like uh they're not poly polypopaloid but they oh they were like horal phylotaxy and uh one was a hermy and then the other two like sucked shit so res dog can kiss my ass sorry <laughs> might have to you might have to edit that oh if you're happy with it i'm happy with it that just kind of came out i told you that might come out something like that but uh <laughs> you know i i got to i got to hold people you know, for their standards. And uh, if your genetics suck and you're a piece of crap, then, you know, that's, that's just it. Certainly know that a lot of people um, have done good with his, his uh, work. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great little segue onto ChemDog. You know, ChemDog is a focal part of the show and indeed modern cannabis history. Where does ChemDog sit in the grand scheme of things to you? And do you have any plans to try to work with it going forward? That might be the best question that you ask me because uh, I'm. I am. Uh, I recently met, say, you know, Lucky Dog, uh, Skunk VA, and yep. I've known I've known uh, Duke for a while, and uh, 
Shit, Duke sent me some Kim uh, Cross maybe a couple years ago when I grew it, and I, you know, I didn't think too much of it. I had never been experienced with Kim, period, at all. And this is going to be a little bit harsh, and I might get people to hate me because they're followers of the people. But in uh, in the high time San Bernardino Cup in seventeen, I wanted to get a handle on what Cam was, and the cat that I'm running around with his uh, his IG handle is. Uh, 907 or falconer 907 and this kid has a you know 100 150,000 to 200,000 dollars worth of genetics that he's collected and he intends to maybe start up or uh using it someday i don't know what the hell he's doing with it now but he's collected it and you know spent a fortune to, to collect it so he knows every single person in and the backstories that's who i go to for information and uh, he's carrying me around and I go, I want to smoke some, I didn't know what Gorilla Glue was or had a whole list of stuff. I didn't have no idea what it was. So he went over to JJ at uh, Top Dog, I do believe, and uh, introduces and we were all talking and JJ like had a pre-roll or something. Maybe he rolled, I can't really remember because I'd smoked like 20 joints. But uh, we start smoking and it's my little partner, AK Rizzo and, uh, and Falconer and and uh jj and we're smoking up and man the third or fourth hit around the big ass seed pops out of that shit and sh it blows up like a grenade and uh which you don't <laughs> normally see a lot of usually you'll see them like fume out like a little volcano but that shit popped and it's like oh that shit's arch and i nobody you know really wanted to smoke it and it's like oh no we're good you go i'll roll another one out of my stash like no no we're good you know we rolled on and it's such a poor example of what my first my first chem dog was like. Oh, so that's that that's not really a uh, you know real happy feeling. And uh, then in Emerald that same year, I was over there talking with uh, he goes by Montana Roy now. You know uh, Cody and uh, yeah over at Duke's and um, Duke disappeared maybe to get a smoke or something. And uh, he he goes man you. You check out this Kim dog, uh, or yeah, Kim dog, I think it was, but uh, he gives us a bunch of his flowers. He gave us, like, you know, the he had killer flowers that, that year. He had the, like, Dominion skunk and the Granny skunk and uh, the local H, and I think the Dominion or the uh, capital G, and he had such stinky ass bud polecat and, uh, he gave us some of that cam, and I just sat right there and rolled it up. And uh, second or third hit of that shit going around, I realized what cam was. It's like, oh, it hit me between the eyes, and I was like, oh, okay, it overrode probably 15 other things I'd smoked. And I realized that, you know, cam's pretty serious, pretty serious, but so it's a good thing to judge by. It's got rankness to it, it's got bag appeal. It's it's a good standard to uh, compare a lot of things to, but I'm I'm so inexperienced with it, first time ever that I was able to get my hands on it and do something with it. it was like you know uh, this year at Emerald the uh, Skunk VA gave me a nice handful of the Crossroads Kim and we were smoking the shit out of it and it's really great, bud. So um, I like it a lot, but I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, what could I do? with Kim that hasn't been done and then there's people that are specializing in it so there's no sense in uh, 
I wouldn't say competing with them because I don't I don't necessarily compete with people. I'd make something equally or as good and then you know share it with them. But I'd say that there's a lot of people specializing in chem, and I don't need to go down that road at all. And that's a really kind of mature mindset to have and definitely a huge shout out to Cody and Skunk VA. I love all the Skunk Fam crew. Um, just out of curiosity, do you remember which chem you tried? Was it the 91 or maybe the D? It was Chem D. That's what it was. I'll tell you what, um, there was a couple of people standing there on that third round when the, when the joint came back and uh, they backed out and didn't take a fourth drag off of it because the shit was starting to affect them heavily. So, that's a good that's a real good uh standard to go by that's what i think yeah certainly and i mean it's probably a bit of a no-brainer but if anyone including yourself ever gets the chance to try some 91 from skunk va do not pass up that opportunity oh i would put it in my library and uh i'm i think i've been offered you know, he was, he's always been a really great guy. I don't know him super well, but he's always been super generous and offered me things, but I never took him up on it. But I would keep it in my library. And uh, I guess that finest uh, cut that was going around the Chem, what was it, um, Chem D at the uh, Emerald this year? I know a couple people that grabbed that, so I might, uh, I might snatch that up, even though it's not the 91. Yeah, well, I mean, heck, the D is uh, really comparable to the 91 in many ways. I always thought of it as though it's not quite as potent. Like maybe if the Chem 91 is kind of like 100 out of 100 in potency, the Chem D is like somewhere between 90 to 95, but the taste and the yield are much better. So commercially, it kind of makes a bit more sense. Yeah, well, I know uh, Mr. Bob grabbed up one of them. He said his was doing real good and... Um he was going to prove it out, but I had heard from second-hand sources that uh, P. Bud Mike confirmed that that was the real Cam uh, D. So I don't think you can go wrong. Yeah, it's hard given there's so many different Cam Ds. At least three I know of, and um, it's there's there's varying voices vouching for each. But I mean, heck, if P. Bud Mike is vouching for one, that that definitely stands for something. Well, I'm, I heard it secondhand, so I can't say. But, you know, I was real lucky to, to be in the middle of a conversation with uh, Skunk VA Tommy and, uh, or, you know, Duke and uh, a couple of the other guys that were actually at Emerald. And uh, AK Rizzo and I happened to just pop in at that moment. And uh, Duke grabs up Skunk VA and tells him to come over because they're going to settle this thing right now on Providence on. Uh, who had what on this Chem D. So it's like, oh, I need to hear this. And Deuce going, I don't know, this is kind of private conversation. So we instantly just sucked up, up like flies on the wall and listened to it. And at that point, it's so valuable to get, you know, five of, of people that are like, you know, the holders of it. And then all you hear is, well, I got it in 91. You gave it to him in 93. It came from him. Okay, you're right. It did. That's the exact source. I'm wrong. And then shit just gets squared out right then and there. And uh, the provenance is like so well set on it. that uh, That's one of the best things about that right there. I'm really, I really, really get lucky to uh, get a hang with guys like that. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. I, um, I've been really grateful to have heard a few conversations like that. I remember the first time I was at Emerald Cup, 
um, just out of nowhere, not so dog kind of tapped me on the shoulder and introduced himself and it was like, oh, awesome. He's able to reveal a few things to me, which was very interesting because he's tied into more things than you might know of. You know, it's funny with uh, with him that um, I've got friends that had used him as good, good friend and librarian and holder of, of keeper strains. And uh, he is he is the further I see, he's got his uh, hands all over. And, you know, I've got a really good friend that uh, knows him, but that's who held El Jefe's, uh, that Hayes Capis and El Jefe did not have it and during the fire lost everything so uh, they thought it was gone forever but Not So Dog held it and uh, Sativa Seed Stash uh, Leaf he was able to go snatch that, that thing up, get the cutting up so now El Jefe's got his uh, cat piss either coming back to him or has it back and uh, it's it's so valuable to have somebody like Not So Dog holding you know, might be years later, but when it comes into play, it's it's an incredible value to everybody involved. Yeah, most certainly. And so, him and Bob Hemphill, I think, uh, in my mind, are the, the two really notable librarian figures, so to speak. If we just jump over to Bob for a minute, um, I noticed on your Instagram feed, you've got some MTF cross nl1 and i think you mentioned in the comments it was given to you by bob was that the case or was it like you did he make it and give it to you or did you make it and do something with it how does that all tie together no on that that's my mtf and my nl1 i uh i have given bob my mtf and uh he could certainly have my nl1 or close to the what I have right now to it with no problem but uh, that's just something that I made up I had to use NL1 to uh, I had to do something to get seeds for Matanuska Thunderfuck and there's really, really no better choice so that's what I used yeah okay so I mean on that same kind of train of thought your feed it's essentially like a gold mine in terms of all the different genetics on there and the next thing which popped up to kind of sprick my ears up was the Northern Lights Haze hybrids I think they were TK Northern Lights Haze hybrids um, what's the backstory behind that and what do you want to kind of do with those I'm glad you're that observant I know if I knew what you know at your age like you're an incredible you know human being especially for your age I I uh, I value you a lot. So, just you have insight beyond a lot of others. And that being said, uh, that's that's a real, real, real special thing right there. That the TKN5 Haze. Uh, we've been able to work with it for a long time. Uh, my original Waco in the '80s. We never knew what it was. It was a local plant but it has to be NL5 Haze, and we never knew. It looks, looks every single thing about it, like the cover photo of the 8990 Sensi catalogs, and we didn't buy it from Novell because uh, it looks so ratty on the cover photo, funnier than shit that we would pass on something due to looks, but uh, I've been able to get NL5 Haze from... Uh, I think uh, Mean Gene grew some in 98 from a, a 
friend of his in England. So might have been his first breeding or first. Uh, it could have been his first breeding. I know it was his first NL kind of cross. So uh, he did a seed increase, and he gave me some of that seed. And then when I grew on, I uh, I thought they were pretty cool. They're super NL5 dominant. But I just recently crossed that TKNL5 haze male to that NL5 haze to uh, kind of do a back cross on it and um, go that route. But uh, as it stands, TKNL5 haze is, and this is going to go on record, but this is the uh, the finest uh, <laughs> and best and strongest cannabis that I have come across in two decades wow that's a big claim yeah i hate to i hate to uh go around and keep repeating myself but i have told uh all my local old heads my partners and and um all my uh testers all are on board and 100 percent don't they they're not taking anything for granted on the deal but uh I've sent it out to a bunch of uh, people that are, uh, they need to be amazed. And if you did get sent the TK NL5 Haze, I don't care if it was the NL dominant or the TK Haze dominant or a cross of it, I wouldn't sleep on it because it, uh, oh man, going out on a limb here, but I do believe it's all of what Kim ever was and uh, it tastes better. Yeah, wow, that's exciting. Just a quickly, I just wanted to say thanks so much for those kind words. I really appreciate that. Um, but I guess, does it go without saying that this is the next type of line you're looking to work more or has it already been done? You know, it's been done, but I just don't see where this bottleneck that's created with 1,000 cookie strains is going to go from here. It's not going anywhere. It's, uh, it's going to revert back to... Uh, a lot of heirloom and I say even a lot of land race genetics are going to get re-added back uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, might not be uncontrollable, hard to grow wild strains, but there's going to be a lot more need to, uh, to try to, you know, break the bottleneck. And uh, it has been done 10 ways to Sunday for sure. NL5 haze, but if you consider it like this, uh, one of the, one of the most knowledgeable and uh, trustworthy and uh, old heads that are out there be Ed Rosenthal, you know. He he had a good opinion of uh, NL5 Haze as being the most potent uh, smoke that he'd ever come across, and it was like his favorite, you know. And then if you go on facts like Dynasty, Relic Seeds has... Uh, he has a he has a twenty seven percent nineteen year old cut of the cough, and I'm I'm imagining it is the Fort Collins cough or the, you know it was it was named the cough, but it was uh, I think in uh, probably uh, produced right out of Fort Collins, but I've heard it called the Texas cough and other things too, but it is the same thing, and uh, it's an outstanding NL five hay. So I was able to send pollen of my TKNL5 haze to Relic, and he got a breeding done. And being the gentleman that he is, he sent me one over half of all of the seeds, which just, you know, totally amazes me. I probably, uh, I could probably shout out to him uh, 
as being one of the uh, more heartfelt uh, people that I've come across in the industry. So uh, uh, he's he's a really good guy. But we created a monster right there. That uh, it's something else. So uh, that's something in the works. But the TKNO5 Hayes, I'm going to work at Ten Ways to Sunday right now, and uh, it's going to be the next thing. If you if you got a high if you have a high tolerance to most profiles right now, this will take care of the problem. It's a, you know, it's a 20 second onset type of a plant that uh, hits you like a brick. And it's not that dizzy, spacey uh, high like the Durban tie high flyer or tie or Durban or any of the uh, super heady, like flying your head on a kite string type of thing this stuff hits you like way different it's an anti it's a diovasculator very 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 heavily as like a medical diovasculator so you get zero blood pressure in your brain so if you're smoking a big head of it and hold it it could uh it could floor you many 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 people busted their heads on coffee tables or uh uh, whatever hard object that's nearby, it's it's a dangerous animal, and I'm, it's no joke. I've told this to like a bunch of people, and they just like in one ear and out the other because they don't think such things exist. But I think that in in Novell's uh, description of the NL5 haze, he said experienced smokers were, uh, you know, having uh, urination and defecation, and uh, they lose bodily control over smoking this shit. Yeah. Uh, it's a fact this stuff does medical uh, properties beyond any normal weed. So uh, it is definitely something that I'm going to dig dig a 10-foot ditch into. <laughs> yeah, I can 100% attest to some of those claims. Certainly certainly not the, the loss of bodily function. But, I mean, when I was at Bodie's place most recently, I was lucky enough to try some C5 haze, which is the Neville's Keeper cut of Northern Lights Haze and Jesus I've never been that high before it's truly something special so I'm gonna have to chase you up on your one because that's that's truly interesting but now is the time for us to shower our buddy Dr. P and some love you know how did you first get introduced to Dynasty Genetics and what's your favorite strain by them wow that's 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 a good one uh I was totally disconnected from internet for 20 years so I was anti and uh, when I did realize well, I'd say about 12 or 13 years ago really uh, I realized that there was so many forums and that there was on those forums there was like seed bank information and once I started like I had a dozen favorites and all of it was I started to get addicted to it and uh it's it's something that happens to everybody, right? But then uh, I I started to see opinions on what was what, and I did buy some old seed stock right then. But the Professor P and Dynasty came along about maybe through maybe about four years ago. But Rocky Mountain Seed Bank, I just saw that they had uh, a release of of uh, Platinum Huckleberry cookies, and I'd never seen cookies. I heard about it. And I thought I would never want to have nothing to do with it because uh, 
people are saying it's a low yielding super elite and uh, you know i'd like to let it go it's uh, run its course i'd like to you know 10 years later i might pick it up so uh but that one sounded real interesting and uh i i just got a pack of that from the rocky mountain uh seed bank i don't even know that that's an existing seed bank right now it was a little tiny uh uh, man and wife operation, I think, but they treated me super right, and uh, seeds made it. I grew them. I got um, everything on it was awesome. I got two OG KB dominant uh, versions, a super male and a super female. The male, like, turned super black, tons of resin, uh, probably the nicest uh, OGBK, uh, I mean, KB uh, type of... Uh, plant that i've come across for a male and then the females were just like super good so for three or four years i i just been in love with the i don't even know how i i might have shouted him out one time and he hit me back on a friday night and told me to you know chill and have a good weekend and uh, slowly we kind of talked and uh, he he no whatever it boiled down to we became friends and uh He's a stand-up guy, so not enough uh, can be said about him being a good guy. Yeah, no, I agree. I've got so much love for that guy. I probably can't put it in words, but I guess uh, kind of by virtue of what you said, the Platinum Huck is your favorite strain from them? I I can't say that now. Um, You know, uh, his... The Pineapple Fields is outstanding. Everything that he's made has got something special going on. Uh, the Blue Magoo was uh, really nice. I know that the um, Huckleberry, the, um, the what is it? I've got about a pack of everything that he has he has sent me. In, but the uh, Vanilla Cherry Cookies is, is off the hook. Really a good keeper. Really good smoking. Um so I don't I don't think that I really have a favorite of his. I think that he has proven all of his to be really well. There's not like no duds in it. So uh, each one has a pretty good uh, thing going for him. Even you know everything he crosses is pretty well thought out and done upright. So his males are outstanding, and then his females you know speak for themselves. So. But yeah. I tend to smoke a lot of that. I do smoke a lot of the Platinum Huckleberry cookies. Of course, of course. Just as a little personal thing, I've, I've grown the Plat Huckleberry cookies out before and I loved it. Something I noticed was it, it's such a short, stocky plant, you know. Did you have any tips to how to get around that? Because I just, I could never get it to stretch at all. You know, that cookies was so dominant. We have the opposite with one of ours. It has to be caged. It'll have 20... 20 and 30 uh, tentacle branches that want to go, it'll go off like nuts. So I've crossed it with things like lemon tree and uh, central core with strong centers and slower growing to to just slow it down. But we have one that uh, it's OG KB dominant and it just grows um, nice central. You can make it to be six and eight tops easy enough, and, and uh, it's real easy to grow and fast growing. So now his that was the version one. The V three now is a stockier, slower growing one, and bushier. But he says that it uh, dominates more towards the Oregon Huckleberry, so it's faster in flower, 
and a uh, little bit better flavor towards the uh, the huckleberry. But it's slow. I have some four-month-olds that are just stocky as hell. They're wanting to look like um, like little trees. So it's slower. If you think yours was slow, I'm I don't know that it was the B three. It's it's uh, you can you can hang ornaments on it when it's Christmas time though because it's that sturdy. Oh yeah, no, I definitely definitely had that nice strong branching for sure. And I sh- I should clarify, I didn't mean that in a particularly negative way. I just was kind of wondering if you had any tips or tricks for it. But on that same line of topic, I noticed you have a little sub forum on Matt Riot's forums. That's an interesting one. How do you strike up your friendship with Matt? We love Matt on the show. We're always interested to hear how people met him. That is a good one too because I didn't know who he was and. Uh you know, I think he, uh, oh, I know how, is that I had, uh, you know, I had offered a little bit on the Instagram of the old seed catalog collections, and uh, he, you know, being that he's got the history, and uh, at least, like, I'd say 14, going back 15 years, even working with Novell, and, and uh, you know, the whole backstory there, um, it, uh, he hit me up for them catalogs, and it's like, wow, old head i imagine this this dude's 50 years old and old head and he wasn't what i you know when you when you meet him face to face he's certainly not what what your first impressions are but i asked uh falconer my my buddy who's the uh he's the go-to for information i said who's this riot cat he says oh man that guy man he got a lot of controversy man he'll bring up but he'll, he's he's honest and he's straight and he'll put he, he'll put uh He'll put a, a motherfucker on blast. And, yeah, uh, hell yeah. It's like, it's like, okay, I need to check one of these live feeds out this cat has. And um, he shouts me out big time on there for um, for the catalogs. And it went from there. He sent me, you know, a ton of seeds and a uh, bunch of packs of, like, Reservoir uh, Strawberry Diesel F3s or whatever the shit that Bruce Banner came out of. You know, he sent me packs and packs of it. And it's like, well, I thought maybe you'd want to sell it or auction it off or something. And it's, uh, it's like, oh, he he is a good guy. He'll uh, he'll stand up for the right and um, and that's it. If, if your shit needs to go on blast, that's the guy to uh, talk to because he's knowledgeable and, and he's a dick, but man, he's a dick in a good way. Yeah, I love I love Bodie's analogy. He says he's like the pit bull, and we need the pit bull to go off at people sometimes. Yeah, people. That's the best analogy, and from a good guy too. Because you think about it, Bodie is too nice of a guy, and um, people might. I'm not going to say that he's non-confrontational. He might know. He might be a seventh degree black belt for all I know, and like kill you in two seconds, but. <laughs> I don't think that he's going to go busting somebody's balls because they did him wrong. And then, you know, Matt ain't going to let that shit happen. So um, he'll go out of his way to, you know, make shit right. And I I know for sure there's another side of that. And a a lot of people um, take it or leave it. I don't give a fuck what they think about me. Uh, So I just kind of like to... uh, Stay straight with everybody, but shit, Matt's a good guy to go to for knowledge, and uh, he's way more into the uh, breeding knowledge for fems and stuff, so if I have any kind of questions and shit like that that I need to know, 
I would be right to him on that. Yeah, I definitely wanted to add, we definitely need to get Matt back on the show for a catch-up. He's, he's always got some funny anecdotes to say. But just looping back to a different post I saw on your Instagram, I noticed that Professor P had sent you some kind of CBD stuff from the new Relic lines, and I noticed that you mentioned you've got your own kind of CBD thing going. Would you mind telling us a bit about your CBD project? Yes, it's uh, it's pretty... Uh it's pretty ongoing and, uh, you know, getting to be widespread because, uh, basically about March of, uh, 17, I was like affected very badly by something. I didn't know what it was. We'd done, you know, literally a thousand tests. I thought I might be dying from heavy metal poisoning from, painting cars for 30 years or I thought I might just be dying from whatever. I was dying. So um, we got it diagnosed after tons of trying and it just turned out to be a form of RA and it's called polyarthritis. So it's like one of the worst forms of RA and it just hammers your joints. So I was about 80% disabled. It was, it was, it was ugly. I mean, no putting on, I couldn't do my belt or put on socks or shit. That was, it was bad. I'd rather just about, uh, curl up in a ball and fucking die because of pain. And, uh, we ended up getting it into remission. I went to a, a specialist and he put, first my doctor just put me on, you know, opiates and fucking, uh, methotrexate. Uh, not methotrexate at that point. He just give me steroids because he's like a general practitioner. Yeah. So uh, we got. I went to the um, rheumatologist and he gets me straightened out off of. Uh, told me to suffer it out, swell up like hell, come back in pain, and then he'll tell me what's up. And we did go straight for. Uh, he tried two or three different little concoctions and nothing worked. He instantly gets me on an injection of methotrexate and then a deloxetine which is like a uh, pain blocker, but it's more, it's diagnosed for um, depression. So it just makes you happy about your fucking arthritis. So it's, um, <laughs> it, might, it might be the better drug, but yeah, methyltrexate puts, I, I, I had that and I get it in remission to where I could go back to work. And uh, I worked through the whole time, but it was brutal. You know, it was, it was truly one of the harder things I'd done in my life. And uh, I realized that CBD could take that swelling out like crazy. So I was buying and checking out different CBD flowers, and we ended up trying ACDC and Pennywise. I think that um, Northstar might have been who was breeding it for uh, Subcool, but I tried a couple different ones, and it turned out that the stuff had an actual medical effect to it. And um, my wife has Crohn's disease, fierce, and has had an ileostomy. So if she has like a terrible flare-up, the stuff could work wonders for um, internal inflammation reduction. And uh, such a good thing, CBD. So I realized that it's some road that we have to go down. And then I started collecting a bunch of the best examples that I could get. So, you know, ACDC, I... Uh, Got a decent twenty to one. I got a, I got a couple from the Nature Farm. Uh, it's API Apathetic uh, Purple Indica. It's a fifteen, a three to fifteen. Everybody always says fifteen to one, and you know they got it backwards. So, um, 
I generally say it the way it's supposed to be. His is a three to fifteen, and uh, I got Canna Montana from uh, King J out of uh, out of Montana. There, uh, his Canna Montana is a really nice one. Um, but we probably got fifteen different ones. So uh, Willie G's Lebanese, the thing can go um, easy one to twenty, and uh, you know monster uh, Lebanese plants that can just be crazy uh have all the good things of the wild uh, lebanese and uh i don't know if it'll adapt well to the indoor gardens but uh, that and that charlotte's gift from relic that you mentioned that charlotte's gift is uh you know charlotte's web and ringo's gift and i think he has it to an f3 when he gave it to me so i asked him if he minded that um you know we use the males and you know he's 100 percent doesn't uh, doesn't care and again he's the best guy in the world but that's going to be uh, one of the components so my goal is to just make something that's about 10 to 20 that'd be to me a 1 to 2 uh, and then I want it to be something that makes me happy which would be the main goal with most people smoking flour right you definitely want something pleasurable yeah of course so what do you predict will be the future of the cbd orientated strains especially given there's this sentiment within the community that the kind of the patients who are really in need of the cbd have kind of been left behind now that legalization has come and passed that's a that's a real uh problem because it has come to that uh cbd flowers not something that uh, people you know, I always think indoor growing, but down down in a lot of areas, it's legalizing now that they're not relying on indoor growing. They're relying on um, light depth or greenhouse or outdoor growing, and uh, they won't devote much or any of their time in genetics or garden or, or whatever it takes to make a decent amount of medicine. So it's going to just boil down to large industrial hemp type of operations for people to get medications i'm not thinking that it's the worst thing in the world because it's come a long way and uh, the cbd plants that uh i'm going to give another shout out right now and this is a good one to do it to it's a uh, cloud co farms on instagram has a uh, full spectrum cbd that's available and they have their own products it is uh it's all packaged and for sale in individual doses and at, at retail shops, but they're also a company that's willing to sell at the wholesale level and in uh, fairly small doses. You can buy a 100 gram, uh, that's probably the lowest um, price break that you get, but 100 grams of their full spectrum distillate is $10 a gram. And it's one of the best medicines I've ever come across. It it actually has a fairly high amount of uh, THC in it where if you're not a smoker, you're going to be uh, much more uh, recreationally medicated than you're wanting. And uh, it is just enough to make the CBD work, and it also has every other cannabinoid in it and the terpenes. So their uh, product is one of the best I've ever come across. They're not out, they're not out to be, you know, the corporate king and... Uh, They've expanded from one size operation to the next without killing the little guy and um, leaving the opportunity open. And I do believe last year he planted uh, 
almost 100 acres. It, it went from a small deal, but he still has his indoor greenhouses over the winter, and he's showing 100% love 100% of the time. So uh, as long as he can sustain that, guys like that are uh, – that's where all of the uh, – I think medical benefits probably going to end up. It's not going to be flower for the people, but it's still going to be a high quality, full, wide spectrum uh, cannabinoid uh, distillate. He has isolate also, but you know isolate doesn't work the same as distillate, and the full spectrum is better than anything. So there's a lot of value to people like that. Yeah, wow, you just banged out my next question, which was going to be, what do you think is the most medicinal of all the uh, the type of, you know, full spectrum, extract, et cetera, et cetera? That, uh, that thing contends with anything because you can, uh, it's such a good high quality product if say that you're into extracts and you might do dabs on a, on a quartz dab rig or something. Uh, it tastes really good and... Uh, it's a very quick onset medically when you're doing a dab. The The length of it isn't going to last you as long, but his products are so good that it, it tastes great, and uh, you'd near grab the wall. It's it's very potent, so I wouldn't say you could comfortably, uh, most people wouldn't want to work and, and be doing a bunch of dabs of it. It's that potent on the wide cannabinoid, uh, you know, full-spectrum side of it. So it's the best medicine, but it's also... It's a really good uh, mixture to where it really does work. It's 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 a real. I wouldn't say a perfect because somebody in a lab is definitely going to make something that could be get right past the blood brain barrier and uh, and be the top of the line through you know through lab work and um, engineering. But for just a natural product, his is is it's pretty top of the line. I've never met anybody that doesn't get on board when they find out about it. Yeah, okay. Sounds like good advice. So, if we just loop back to a topic we were talking about before, I remember you were you were talking about cookies, you know, where do you think it'll go? I noticed that you've been working with this F3 Durban, and my thoughts are now that you've played with the Durban a bit, do you are you more convinced or less convinced that it's actually a part of the cookie genetic makeup? I'm you know, I'm convinced that it's nothing to do with it. Um, my Durban is not their Durban for sure. So, uh, and there's plenty of uh, different Durbans, but uh, this is original SSSC's Durban stock, and uh, I could breed it ten ways to Sunday, and I don't believe I'm getting cookies. So, uh, I think that maybe. Uh, Cookies is probably just like Hindu Kush and Northern Lights, and uh, that's probably really all it is. Yeah, certainly that that Hindu Kush idea has been thrown around a bit, especially given that you can get these kind of real savory bakery shop type of things out of Hindu Kush easily. That and my NL one leaf pattern in its extreme form is identical to the most extreme OG KB leaf pattern. So if I can go back to 1985 and have a leaf pattern with shitloads of fucking photographic evidence and I can reproduce it right now on an OG KB, it tells me a lot. 
Yeah, most certainly, most certainly. I mean, I think Inspector from CSI has said something along those lines about when you do S1s of Mendo Perps, you likewise get that same phenotype and, you know, Mendo Perps is, uh, sorry, not Mendo Perps, Purple Urkel, my apologies. When you when you S1 Purple Urkel, you get that OGKB pheno and I don't think anyone would deny that uh, Purple Urkel's probably got some NL or, you know, some pure Afghanica in it, right? I would say it has to. I've never been, uh, I could think of 10 strains straight up um, that I didn't have experience with because it never made it up here during the, uh, I'd say, 85 to 2005. So if it wasn't in my hands, I didn't need it. I'm that kind of guy that doesn't look for a greener pasture and uh, very happy with what I'm working with. So uh, I never saw Purple Urkel until, I mean, the very first time I had anything to do with was uh, 12 years ago with Quirkle, and that's half Purple Urkel, and then since then I've heard stories that have been, you know, put out that it wasn't even half Purple Urkel, that it was it was uh, a lavender hybrid, so uh, I had no experience with Purple Urkel, but recently I did and do have, and uh, it's a real unique plant. The leaves want, mine want to point upwards all the time, it has a very uh, NL uh, dominant leaf pattern, even though it'll go to like easily go to eleven fingered leaves, and I never got eleven fingered leaves ever off of NL. And uh, but it's a super unique type of plant, so it's uh, it's coming down from that line. Uh, it's crossed to something though. So uh, and it happens to be that mine is a F two of. Uh, the CSI's purple oracle too. So, but it, it's a fantastic thing that he preserved and has passed on too. It's um, it smells good in veg. It's one of the things like like I'll go back to. I like weed that that's pleasurable. That's like most of the reason that I make flour and love flour because I love to be pleased by good flour. I love smoking it. So I can't wait until uh, I have big piles of that purple oracle flour. <laughs> yeah yeah definitely the that end feeling of consuming the flour is definitely definitely worth the effort but uh you brought up an interesting point you know as time goes by there's certainly been at least in the past year or so a bit of controversy surrounding tga um and our buddy sub cool but with that being said you know i think most people have a strain that they hold somewhat near and dear that comes from tga like for me personally i got a brilliant i got two brilliant cuts of chernobyl that i just adore i'll never never give them up no matter how much controversy surrounds the name do you have anything like that that you know near and dear to your heart from tga you know i do i have uh, a lot of love for old tga because they uh they put some really good combinations together. Uh, I think that Blood Wreck was probably the best thing that they made, and things down from Blood Wreck are uh, off the hook. I was uh, I was completely blown away when I was able to get uh, Crazy Train, original Crazy Train, about um, it was about eleven years ago, and I think I got it from the the Hemp Depot of all places because that place is is shady as shit and. Uh, the uh what i got was good and um i fell in love with tga because of that i also had space jill at the time the actual what they called space jill and that's what they were selling it as and it was exactly like their description uh it's a little bit too much of a biomass for me but still uh 
it was a great uh, producer. So I crossed it to Chocolo. This this is a long time back now, um, going on at least eleven years, and uh, I crossed that to Chocolope, that Space Jill, and I call it Tropolope. That's a fantastic thing that I've made. I just recently uh, passed that down to Miss Jill, and uh, she didn't want it when she was with TGA, and uh, you know they were doing their own thing. But um, another really really impressive. Uh, thing that TGA, uh, they had uh, a limited release of Locomotion, it was called by Heroes of the Farm, and uh, Pat did a really good job making that. It's Blue City Diesel, bred to Time Wreck, and I don't know how many packs went out, but uh, I guess quite a bit. I was at Subcool's house at... Uh, in 17 in the summer and uh, he was opening a box that came in from Pat and uh, had 20,000 one Ziploc bag had 20,000 locomotion seats in it but he also had quite a few backups of a, a couple others but the total uh, at $2 a seat it was a uh, $60,000 uh, check he had to cut over to Pat so I mean that's his personal business I shouldn't be talking about it but I know that uh, Quite a bit of that locomotion seed was produced and still is getting produced, but they had it understated on their on their uh, profile, and I instantly told Subcool that that thing had to be changed uh, to over the top, over the top uh, terps. And uh, I don't know if it's uh, all good coming from the Blue City Diesel or if it's the mix with the Time Wreck, but. Uh, that's uh that's something that I can't live without on a daily basis too. I keep it at all points in time since I've got it, and uh, I breed it quite a bit because it's one of my only true purples. I get uh, I get insane color from it, but the uh, the flavor and the high. It only tested out at uh, I had a couple of them. I tested analytically. One was thirteen point eight. That's the one I keep, but the terpenes were very high on it, and uh, with the pro the profile of the terpenes and that that cannabinoids the way they are it hits like a 25 percent of anything that just has that that thc spike and uh it's it's a pretty great thing so tj's put in their time whether they've uh you know whether they've kind of uh gone and done different things than they've done in the past and you follow them or not there was a lot of good value to it if you find an old package of like Oh, five third dimension. I would certainly crack it. So there was a lot of good stuff. Oh yeah, some of that uh, Apollo work they did was definitely of value. But while we're on the topic, what are some of your favorite old school seed companies? Whether they be around anymore, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, they might be defunct. They might be still operating. But what are some of the old ones you loved? That's that's kind of weird for me because for twenty years I didn't know that they existed and when i did find out about 12 years ago that the internet was you know available i mean i was like i could give a shit about the um the internet i i basically want to uh live my life and never have to ever go on it and now i'm uh i utilize it for uh, instagram and if i had to order something off of amazon it's it's pretty handy or uh you know, look up a strain review. You can find out some instant information. Other than that, I don't need it. So 
when I did find out there was companies available and I, di I dipped into it a little bit, one of the first things I liked was uh, DNA because of their chocolate. Pure, I like the idea of that pure sativa. And it turns out, you know, whether people, there's controversy behind that like crazy too, saying they stole their lines and lied about what it was and this and that. And makes me want to have to, uh, you know, discount them. And then now what they're doing, you know, they've blown up so big now that I can't follow somebody like that or even um, I can't give them any love. I still have a ton of chocolate. I mean, thousands of seeds of it and then projects of it that are, I still keep in cut form 10, 12 years. Uh, my crazy train. I mean, my skunk cabbage is, you know, TGA and DNA. That's crazy train and chocolate. And it's the thing that I, I go to. It's my go-to to get stoned when other things wouldn't get me high. And um, so that question's hard for me. Um, I go back to seed companies that I love. It would only probably be SSSC and, you know, the seed bank. I didn't have no contact for a long time after that. And then modern guys, I love Dominion. Um, he doesn't put anything out that isn't worthy. And I love, uh, you know, Dynasty. And I can think of probably 20, you know, Mean Gene. Those guys, they just don't cut corners and uh, that's who I'd say I love as, as uh, seed producers but uh, that's it's a hard question for me yeah okay so I guess if I'm going to play devil's advocate here how do you feel European genetics in general have influenced the world stage and how do you feel about them now in terms of their overall state of affairs well I think that through uh, the very first uh wave of it it was really good influence for the whole entire world the best influence that could be but within 10 years there was more uh, industry um, infiltration from they taken proprietary genetics back and forth stealing them and backstabbing because everybody was trying to to get something in the only legal market in the world so uh, through that they'd either misbred lied and you know it came about to water down their genetics severely so uh the state of european genetics was a gold mine that could have been tapped and, and still there are some uh, holdouts of it but i do believe that it's uh it's not compared to uh it's never been compared to alaskan genetics there's no there's no possible way it ever could because the morals were just like completely different and uh we were breeding for ourselves, and the, they were supplying the world, so they didn't give a shit. They were making money, and I think it, it weakened the world state of cannabis fiercely over the last decade, especially, for at least from 05. I, I mean, it was garbage in 05. Euro trash. I hate to say it and be so harsh on the people because, you know, there's some good breeders, and they're still putting in good work, and there are guys that are still doing some pretty good out there. I... Uh, I personally know them, and, um, or I know some companies that are working like through Spain just because it's the only legal outlet, and they're putting in a lot of love, and uh, I could say that they, they're trying to clean up what Europe watered down and spread out. So, how do you feel about kind of some of the European breeders, most notably strain hunters, having gone into these land race areas and traded European genetics for the indigenous ones? Oh, I got to say Franco was uh, on the right path and um, 
I think they did a lot of uh, bad along with good. They certainly didn't hunt in the very good spots. They didn't do a real thorough uh, selection and um, did not hunt in the right spots. So if they watered down stuff by bringing in European stuff, they they probably didn't like do so much detrimental uh, you know, alteration because they never were in the right spots, in my opinion. And um, half of that team was all about money. The other one was all about, you know, cannabis. Yeah, okay. And and how do you feel smoking cannabis in conjunction with tobacco affects it? Do you feel it really doesn't make too much of a difference or do you feel like it does kind of detract or add to things? That's a good question because um, it's so popular with uh, people making uh, – you know, using tobacco wraps, and I've—I think I've smoked three of them in my life. Um, I don't go straight up for um, tobacco wraps, and uh, I got a lot of respect for the people that do. I don't see a problem with it. it makes my throat kind of harsh and uh, tickle a little bit, and I am an—I'm an—I'm a anti-tobacco advocate. So, I'd say natural, wholesome, good, old-fashioned heirloom Indian tobacco. That's a whole different. Um, thing and I know in different parts of the world they certainly do just straight up mix tobacco and hash or tobacco and cannabis and that's just their system and that's their style but I wouldn't be able to hang with those guys shit the, the shit make it I'd be greener than hell and uh, tobacco just doesn't do me any good yeah no I can I can relate on that one I'm, I'm fairly anti-tobacco myself but something I do like to point out to try to show that it's not a one-sided view is like there's actual uh, studies done which show that when you mix tobacco with cannabis it actually results in a greater amount of THC being released and essentially not combusted so it's scientifically proven you get more high from smoking with tobacco so I always try to keep that in mind whenever I get on my high horse. You know, I don't. Uh, I don't want to discount anybody that does roll blunts. I've, I could say I've been uh, floored by fuckers that bust out the blunts. You know, one of them is uh, uh, down at Emerald. Uh, Tony, he has. Um, oh man, it's slipping my mind. His extract company. Uh, he's hooked up with the uh, pharmacy factory a little bit, but um, shit, that cat. Uh, he'd roll up a blunt that. The weed was just super, really good, but it was the right kind of blunt because it wasn't super annoying to me, and we had super pleasurable time smoking it. But then I've smoked some bad, uh, a couple of like, I don't know if it was what it is, the the wrap or whatever. But man, uh, not as pleasurable. So I certainly don't have nothing against it. I'd grow my own tobacco in a second if I um, just for the look of it. It's a cool looking plant. I know a lot of. Uh, I love plants, so we are so limited on shit. I might even grow a big patch of tobacco this summer right next to, like, a batch of hops. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. The old backwoods, they're, um, they're an interesting kind of phenomena taking over, but you touched on the perfect point I wanted to go to next. Given you live in this rather remote place and it's hard to grow things outdoors, what type of things do grow well outdoors? Like, I mean, and in terms of cannabis, do you still see ruderalis on the side of the road type of thing or was that more of like a myth than a reality? No, I don't think there was ever wild uh, ruderalis up here, ever. I I came across plants in the 90s that we don't know where the ruderalis gene came from because I had bought in the you know, 90s, I bought... Uh, 
the Skunk One and the uh, Indica Ruderalis from Sensi uh, Seed Bank, and we tried to grow it up here. It was like smoke, you know, it was like in its first stages. It was Ruderalis Skunk, so you're going to get one or two that tasted with some decent uh, smells, and the rest were cardboard. But there was never a wild strain up here. We've uh, we've been able to do a lot of in environmental kind of studies by pushing plants to the end of the year and where i'm at at this exact latitude we know a mild winter we can get five weeks into flower and uh, shit it's just that close to finishing so if somebody was to tweak it or say uh use an auto not an auto flower because i'm friends like crazy with mofestos and i grow a lot of his auto flowers his uh his stuff's a whole different thing and it does work up here but they just get done super quick, and uh, they, they're not like other places. They get, they just do their thing. Uh, I want to have something like a semi-auto that would uh, flower before the light is telling it to, maybe start triggering at 16 hours instead of uh, the slowly 14-hour trigger. And then we'd have two weeks advance on it. and Because um, I think maybe the Iranian auto is something like that. It's a pseudo-auto. And... I've got some blueberries like that too, so we're experimenting, and who knows, we we might alter the course of uh, of the cannabis to meet our environment here if we keep playing with it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you bring up blueberry because I see that you've worked with it. You even gave me a pack of seeds as a blueberry hybrid, and I'm interested. What's your impression of the strain? And are you kind of a DJ short fan in general? You know, I'm not an anti DJ short. But I have never, uh, never grown his strains ever. We've, uh, I think what I gave you was a blueberry nine pound hammer, and we we proved that pretty well in a um, a grow in LA that was for Avid, which was um, you know a pretty big aeroponics company. They were on the stock exchange, and they were building up uh, for selling the IPO, and um, crazy shit happened. The CFO and the CEO had like hostile takeover shit happen to each other and it was about 60 million dollars in accounts that got froze up and i was doing test grows for those guys and that nine pound hammer blueberry nine pound hammer was in there doing i have a lot of videos of it so it, it did excellent and everybody kind of loved it but the uh i got off track to what the hell was the question <laughs> hey, into dj short <laughs> Oh, DJ Short. Yeah, we've uh, we just always been thick with blueberry up here, and nobody's ever said the word DJ Short, man. D- blueberry was so common up here in 1995 that everybody grew up on it, and they're sick as shit of blueberry. You can't get people to even like it up here. Yeah, okay. Very, very interesting there. So, it's interesting because a lot of people will say that, you know, like maybe they read an article from DJ Short in the early years and maybe that helped them with their breeding or whatever. Did you ever read any articles, be it from various authors or were you just very much kind of self-taught? Oh, mostly self-taught, but I definitely uh, read and got told a lot. Uh, Like my little partner, A.K. Rizzo, um, he could... He's a stay-at-home dad, so he can, you know, find those articles. And if it's something that that is even uh, curious to me, which seems to be everything is, he relays it straight to me. So uh, I get a lot of good information, and I've read and found and read as much as I could and certainly do follow. Uh, I like the idea of, uh, like DJ Short said, regenerative uh, 
practices of um, getting full summer growth, and I like the practices of his kid. And I think that he's got it, he's got it going on for his uh, thing that he's got. They're they're both doing really well. One thing of our our blueberry has uh, mostly always been just sativa up here. So uh, a lot of other blueberries in the world turn purple and are indica. And we have some mean, mean, mean blueberry sativa, like indoor average easy one pound per plant sativas that stack up, finish good, fast, and uh, over-the-top blueberries. But it's just our common, it's AK Blueberry. There's like so many. There's Fairbanks Blueberry, Salcha Blueberry, Goose Bay Blueberry, um, a couple others, one called Arctic Blue. Uh, the Arctic Blue and the Dean's Beans Blueberry are both the same. They're about a 25-plus-year-old uh, cutting. And uh, I, I ha I've run that Arctic Blue and bred the shit out of it to just preserve it because it's so old but uh, you know those type of plants with the generational drift they want to be hard as hell to root uh, hard to get to going into veg you have to completely shave their legs and give them like a you know 10 times oversized potter to get them to encourage the hormones to uh, go into the growth tip and start producing vegetative and they want to stay in flower all the time if they shock from anything overfeeding uh not keeping the bottoms cleaned or small roots they just they just straight up auto flower which is a good house plant because in the middle of summer you can have the most beautiful uh smelling blueberry plant like in the kitchen window a little breeze blowing in and just blows blueberry smell all over they really do nice as a a pseudo auto but that has something that's happened to them from you know just being old gals yeah, the idea of genetic drift or kind of loss of vigor is is an interesting topic. And recently, we've seen a lot of people engaging in this meristem tissue culturing, which kind of is said to rejuvenate clones. Is that something you've heard about and maybe possibly interested in yourself? I have heard about it, and I uh, I approve of the uh, regenerative uh, practices. I think that's going to be uh, helpful to a lot of people. I don't have any dudding or slow uh, something that's not they can't be rooted. I have no problem. Um, it's just basically if you have something that's that old and kind of a pain in the butt um, make it grow faster to get the roots. Um, you know it makes a looser cellular formation instead of that real tight cellular formation that almost turns to wood. And there's a lot of ways around uh making plants like that grow and uh i've been just curious just now if i can like give light doses of gibberellic acid and 30 to 50 parts per million to plants like the lemon tree you know it grows you have to grow it under a 65k to get it to stretch or it'll grow if you put it under 4,000, it'll sit down on itself and have 20 internodes at three feet tall and uh that thing will be four or five months in veg and uh, little tricks like 6,500K and maybe 30 to 50 parts per million of some gibberellic acid, you can get internodal length to come up from a quarter inch to, you know, one or two inches and then make that thing move. That's kind of things that run through my mind a whole lot nowadays. Yeah, okay. And so this brings us to a perfect little segue. Do you grow organically or are you more of a synthetic-based grower? 
That's really a good one because I have uh, forever done crazy. Um, we've always had animals, a lot of them, for, for 20, 25 years. A long time ago, we had way over 100 wild boar that I was buying them from, like, the Bronx Zoo. You could get them from, like, the San Diego Wildlife Conservation would sell their extra piglets. And they had, uh, you know, 36-chromosome wild boar from uh, black uh, the Black Forest line and uh, the Bronx Zoo had the Zygot line, which was from Sweden. And we had all of these, uh, like Lima, uh, Ohio would have wild exotic auctions. You could just straight up buy Polish imports, and we were picking up all of these 36 chromosome wild boars. So we would have regular animals too, but we had to have um, something exotic. So we would uh, always have corn mash or corn oats and barley generally uh, soaked or molasses coated. We would soak it in barrels for a week before we feed it. And 20 years ago, I realized that stuff will grow IMO on the top of it. And uh, sometimes we tap a little bit of the water off of it. You can either brew it and make like, you know, some really good hooch, or you could uh, give it to the animals and they get a little bit buzzed off of it. But I would, uh, I never knew to put lactic acid into it and turn it to like a acetic acid. So I would uh, just lightly water the plants with it as like a nutritional boost thinking that the starches would definitely be good for the plants and uh, if you let it sit too long you grow an IMO on the top of it and that made me you know for a long time I'd been doing that we'd always get uh, tons up to you know up to tons at a time of food from connections for our animals so if I would let certain things ferment and I realized about the um, like the Korean natural farming practices I didn't know that's what it was called but we would uh, you know, I'd seen the value of fermenting things because I've I have uh, worked for thirty plus years for a Korean, and uh, we eat a lot of kimchi. I know what fermentation does for you know it's very good. A lot of different things fermented are good. So um, we've always kind of ate natural diets and tons of fermented stuff. So I figured the plants are going to benefit by it. And then I found out later the whole time that we've just been doing you know natural practices of all these organic styles. I can't say I haven't bought a lot of bottles of uh, of uh, pre-made uh, foods, but the ones that I did buy, I would say 35 years ago we used EchoGrow, and uh, it it's not soluble, so you'd have to mix it for a damn hour before you could use it, and uh, it kind of went away, and I uh, used something called uh, ESU, which was Energy Sun University, and... Uh, for about 10 years, that product was around, and it changed its name to, to NSR, and it has since gone off the market. But if I ever had to go to a bottled nutrient, that's what I would go to because it uh, never built salts up, never burnt the plants. It had a, uh, you know, an indicator for pH in it, so it was real, real easy to use. But I have, uh, you know, we'll take, like, a lot of our fermented fruit for our animals, and I'll just straight up been forever making ffj so in my garage i probably have 25 five gallon buckets of ffj in multiple forms and then maybe five gallons of ffa the the fish amino acid and i've got some barrels of uh you know seaweed collected from the ocean just straight up right off the uh, shoreline massive collections of uh seaweed and i'll, I'll ferment that and then put uh 
lactic acid on it and let it brew and then I'll put an IMO that I grow and uh, you know let it inoculate and then go from there and I try to keep like good live soil I mean all the time I'll recycle my soil and refurbish it then you know kick it to the side using EM1 or any of my IMOs I'll just uh, refurbish it real good let it sit in tubs sometimes over the whole winter indoors in the garage and if I use it too much or don't want it, I'll put it into my outdoor gardens. One thing you asked earlier, what does grow up here? Barely anything grows up here. So berries, I have a lots of berries, black currants, raspberries, and uh, tons of uh, current, just different uh, bushes and uh, apple trees and any of the stuff I grow, I put any of my old nutrient dirt that's living right, right into my uh, gardens and generally it'll any leaf that hits it it'll just eat it up the imo will just gobble it up into a pure white uh you know mycelia it's really some pretty nice live soil yeah definitely so i mean now that we know how you grow we've got to ask the other end of the spectrum what type of lighting technology do you like to use and what do you think will be the future of lighting technology that's funny um i was thinking about that you know the other day when i saw the uh High Times, about 15 years ago, advertising 6,000-watt plasma lights, and I think they're landing craft lights, and that was going to be the future way back when. And uh, now I see a change about every year there's an advancement in light. I use uh, four 1,000-watt, 500-watt uh, emitters. They're 1,000-watt they're uh, double-enders, but they're 500-watt, uh, you know, CMH, they call it. I always call them LECs. And um, those are really nice. Those, the plants are just loving the, the um, like a 3,000-hour spectrum. They're like super pimp lights. But I also like some, uh, you know, good-ass LEDs. I use quite a bit of LEDs. I like, um, I like uh, California Lightworks. Uh, they make really good product. I've had real good success. I like... Uh, the spider lights, they're, uh, you know, the biofluorescent spider lights, uh, they're a little bit expensive. It comes up to being about $3 a watt, so they're kind of prohibitive. And now the price is finally coming around, and the quality is about the same on multiple manufacturers. So they're coming down to about $1,000 for those 600 and 650 watt units. And uh, But I also am big on... Uh, Timber grow lights. I'll, I'll shout out the timber grow lights. Uh, you know his 480 Sams are uh, very inexpensive. He uses Meanwell drivers. Uh, they cover really good. They'll replace uh, the 480 Sams will replace the 1000, and they really are a good light. I, I use a bunch of his cobs also. You know 100 watt emitter cobs, some 50 watt emitter cobs because he'll he'll sell those uh, kits. Just wire it yourself. If you've got like a clone cabinet or a, a revegging cabinet or a breeding, you know, I've, I've got the craziest grows because I'll have 100 projects going on. So I've got revegetative state going on and I've got multiple breeding. God, I'm, I'm all over. Uh, so I like LEDs for that purpose. You can't just stick a. I have quite a few uh, 630. The, the 315 watt LECs too and those are really nice they uh, they are not something that I would 
recommend you're better off i think with three uh, 15s and spreading them out every uh two two feet two and a half feet uh, versus like the twin 630s i mean the twin 315s because you're just concentrating too much light in a little central focal point so um i quit using those uh the 630s yeah okay so i mean we've talking about kind of genetic drift as well as lighting so it's it's almost inevitable we get to this topic, but how do you feel revegging affects a plant? Do you feel like there's a lasting difference thereafter revegging a plant, or it's just essentially a very time inefficient way of keeping a clone? There's a lot of opinion on that, and it it does have multiple answers. Um, I don't think that it hurts most strains because some strains come from equatorial land race and you're going to see 11 to 14 hour uh time periods that some bitch will go into uh it'll veg at like 14 hours and flower at 11 and there's a fine line in between there so uh if you're going up more towards the 36 parallel and you're talking about uh either highland or lowland indica they do a different thing. They they never do rebedge their their life cycles over at the end of their life, so they're genetically programmed to pretty much die. I don't think rebedging any plant hurts it. I mean, um, I've heard, I've had a bunch of people that are older than me try to educate me and tell me these other things and what it will do. Um, I utilize it quite a bit. Uh, revegging a plant. I, I found out males revenge much faster than females. Uh, I revenge a ton of plants. I don't think it hurts anything, but I do believe that each plant's genetics are where it varies for if it if it is going to change it or hurt it, it's where it came from. Yeah, okay. And so you did mention earlier that um, putting plants outside is a way of rejuvenating them. Are you ever able to do that in Alaska, or it's it's still rather limited, the time frame? No, we have four months of solid uh, summer. We'll, our light gains about five minutes and 50 seconds a day. So every 10 days, you're looking at an hour of gain, you know. So we have this massive light swing, and it's 22 and 23 hours. Where I'm at, is that, that's my time. If you go any further north, it's straight up 24 hours of light. And the damn UV index is so high in the middle of summer, it's equivalent of... Uh, Oh, shit. There's people that come up here from Phoenix and San Diego, and it'll be 75, and they're telling us bullshit at 75. They're going, it's at least 95, or it's 100, and they're dying, man. And it's just our sun. It's the angle of that thing, and it's the UV index. So you have four months to where you can you can definitely regenerate a plant, and, you oh, man, you can make some crazy bushes. You won't be able to move the, the thing, and you won't have nothing. They won't have a place big enough to flower it. Yeah, wow. Okay, so is that something you've done yourself or just thinking about? No, I will. Um, if I had a mother that uh, I hammered the shit out of and, uh, you know, they're so poor at that point, if you were to put them into flower, you will get nothing on it. And even if you, you know, were to seed it to do a little last ditch effort to save the genetics, you still really are in a bad shape. So I would take like a mother that's been over cut and then give it a full four months and let it get to the five and six foot point and uh, it'll be almost as fresh as it was if it had never been beat to shit so that's an advantage there i do do that every summer 
Yeah, okay. So something I noticed on the alternative end of the spectrum to the sun is I seen a post or two about you germinating plants around the moon cycle. Is that something you do frequently and what type of effect do you think it has? You know, I've been told told by a lot of people that it's real proper and I've uh I've even said it's come out of my mouth that I don't practice that hippie shit. I mean, it's crazy what I've said, but I've contradicted myself because I I do believe that the pull of the uh, the ocean, it has a lot to do with everything in nature. So the magnetic fields that we have no understanding of, period. Look how animals, you know, get around the whole world. It's, it's due to that. They have knowledge way past our knowledge. And if I'm dealing with old seeds that are 25 and 30 years old, some of them never were put up correctly at all. So... Um, you are uh, praying to God and hoping that the moon's pull will anything to get you through on old genetics. So I practice that quite a bit, and it's just a good timing. A lot of time, you know, you uh, stray fox is real aware of all the moon cycles. I am too because I'm, you know, I'm into the um, farmer's almanac and fishing. I know what every tide is because I have to know where my tide book is. I'm a I'm a freak about getting into the water, and I know what the tide's doing at all points in time. So. The moon cycle means a lot to me. I mean, it's 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 a real uh, important thing to know. Yeah, okay. So before we jump into some fishing stuff, which we are going to get to, just got to quickly ask, you are notorious for having these, you know, 20-plus-year-old seeds that you're able to get to germinate. What are some of your little tips and tricks for getting these bad boys to hatch? You know what? It, all, uh, it just was a matter of luck. When I uh, first started putting up seeds, we had no idea when we were going to use them. I imagined a year or two years, and uh, I used 35-millimeter film containers, which turned out to be airproof and uh, waterproof. I put a little bit of a, a decanter, which at the time, um, people would say and put in rice or uh, a small wadded-up piece of, uh, like a paper towel. So I just opted for a small piece of paper towel. And I would generally even write the genetics right on the paper towel so it would be labeled inside, maybe labeled on the outside in a, a black permanent marker. But one or two years, I I never used them. And, uh, you know, I am not one for change. Uh, I've worked the same job since 87. I've had the same house, the same. I, I raise American Bulldogs and I've bred them since late 80s. I've never changed anything. I, I like to just, like, keep it all the same and... Uh, I have changed a little bit, but it's easy to get 30-year-old genetics. You just put them in the freezer and 30 years goes by. And it uh, tends to be if you don't thaw them out, you're going to retain all the germination uh, properties. I I might lose 10% germination if I thaw them out, but I never have to thaw them out because when I dig through them, uh, for one thing, I have a commercial freezer, and I can almost stand in the son of a bitch and key. It's twenty below, so I can, uh, you know, I can get in there and, and pick shit out without thawing it in the middle of summer. But in the middle of winter, we got we have seven, eight months to where you can just straight up grab your collection and start digging through it. It's frozen; it never does thaw out. So, people that I've sent, uh, you know, good old seeds to, Mean Gene, and just a bunch of them. They just they're like instantly going. How old did you say they were? Because I have 100%. It's better than what I just produced. And it's like, well, they, it just happened to all fall together. They were healthy-ass good seeds. And um, people didn't know the time frame on frozen seeds. 
most people assume 20 years on marijuana seed, and then I've heard 30 is the window, but it's way, way, way longer than 30 years because I have 100% germination at 30 years. So um, it is, uh, it's something right there that needs to be explored. It's uh, exciting, too, because you, if you think about it, um, the Joe Rom cut's alive at 50 years. Well, here shortly, 20 more years, I'm going to have 50-year-old seeds that just have never been cracked and still ready to just go. Yeah, wow, that's that's the real treasure trove there. So I guess my final kind of question about Alaska in general is, overall, would you consider it a good environment to be growing indoors, given that it's got that really nice cold temperatures, or do you think it just kind of comes with its own challenges? Yeah, we're a lot more advantageous. We're are lucky, I should say, um, uh, because you're fighting heat in every, every, uh, every place in America, but here... Um, it gets real hot in the interior here. It'll get to 90 and you're fighting heat there. But uh, I know people that grow in Texas. It's it's a pig. Uh, the law enforcement's going to stand on your head and treat it like you're a meth head. And the fucking heat you're going to fight, there's just no way you could be comfortable in a grow room in Texas. And uh, if you were cooling it, you're going to run a fortune in moving air or uh, cooling the air. So we have really good ambient air temperature most of the time so uh we're able to run a little bit hotter lights and just run you know run a, a air box and uh bring in a little bit of fresh cool air which is generally our summer air might be 60 degrees to where you can swap out your summer air and keep a grow room without any big deal keep it at about 75 so as an advantage to growing up here we also never had the uh I'd say till two years ago, we never had powder mildew in Alaska. Never, ever, ever, never. So that was a nice thing. We were isolated. But now, you know, with modern day people trucking clones back and forth from PM Fest, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's common that now we're all infiltrated. And um, Now I imagine next will be the dudding disease. Did you hear about... Uh, Dark Horse Nursery just found a cure, uh, a viral, a viroid that is uh, the name of the bud. The dudding is figured out, and it's a hops disease. I thought that it, it was, and uh, they actually know how to eradicate it now. So there's tests for it, and uh, people with all that dudding, or um, there's a couple other names that they call it. You know, they're figuring that out. So right about the time that shit hits here, we'll actually have a cure for it. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw that post. It's interesting because I think what they were trying to say was that it's some, you know, specified way of doing essentially a meristem culture, which is interesting because, I mean, having spoken to a few people, a few guys have got dudded clones that they're still hanging on to because they're so old, like, you know, the original Calio and stuff like that. Just to just to sidestep that point for one sec, overall, what do you think is the most important factor in a grower out of the three possibilities, genetics, environment, or the grower's skill? Environment. Yeah, right. Sure, because, uh, you know, you can make shitty gen- genetic shine if your environment's perfect and it doesn't take much skill to, uh, to grow. Yeah. Definitely, I would like to have perfect genetics for sure because you could have the best genetics, but what if you just stick it in the shithole environment and then everything's gone? Uh, and you could still just like be an, uh, you know, an idiot and grow, I think. It's a weed. 
it's it's um, that's one of the advantages of growing cannabis is that it's resilient and it gives you hundreds of breaks, lets you like live a very complacent life and you don't even realize how much it's given you. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So just to kind of loop back to your breeding for a moment, the topic of feminized seeds has certainly come up. Is that something you're looking to explore more? And which of the various feminization methods would you want to pursue out of like the colloidal silver, the STS, or like the gibberellic acid? That's cool that you brought that up too, because in uh, in '88 we uh, I was growing tomatoes, and at the time we had Waco, and uh, we I was growing the tomatoes and the uh, cannabis together and I was trying to get the tomato blossoms to set so one of the tomato sets is just a um, gibberellic acid just straight up hormone they sell as it's called um, set spray or something and uh, I spray that shit all over my tomato plants no more blossoms hit the ground the tomatoes stretched you know three feet and the spray got onto a couple of uh Jamaican plants of all things. I was growing them in a greenhouse. Fucking Jamaican gets uh, gets gibberellic acid on it, so the thing goes to a vine. And uh, I thought it was cool. It changed the leaf structure and turned the stems red, like a like a zero, uh, like a magnesium deficiency and uh, no phosphorus. It was like how wild. So I started spraying it on everything, and my Waco plants. Uh, reversed and we made a big batch of seeds and we grew out we thought it was the coolest thing in the world because we knew at that point in time you could find a little bit of information i think ed rosenthal had some shit about uh feminized seeds and uh nothing about chemically induced though it was always about just natural uh you know late season flowers when the thing's trying to save its own life and it generally come from equatorial varieties which at the time that's what a lot of our genetics were had over 50 percent 75 percent had thai or colombian or uh, burmese or any of the equatorial even africans uh and those things will always sell that late season banana to save their own life and uh, that's what i knew as to be female seeds so I saw these and figured it out. We grew them. They were all females. And, uh, you know, it didn't reverse. It didn't feminize as good. It was not as good, I should say, as the mother. So while it was all female, we didn't see a value in it. And we never looked back from 88 on. I never looked back, period. And then, uh, you know, five, ten years, about five years ago, that um, feminized movement just crazily took off. And, uh, I just watched and watched. Go, man, these guys are fucking up everything because I know that um, unless everything's tracked, you can't generally breed to any of this stuff. Past S1, you're screwed. So uh, I realized that it was watering down everything badly. I didn't really want to get into it. I kind of followed people doing it. But um, recently I did grab some STS spray, sprayed a Durban down, and I was going to just do a Durban female uh, reversal or make Durban feminized and just just for the shits and grins, I guess. But it took five weeks for the uh, pollen to actually come out, so I just feminized a uh, lemon tree and an orange tree. The 17 uh, High Times San Bernardino uh, Sativa winner was the orange tree, and nobody disputes the lemon tree as being, like, over-the-top lemon skunk with that, you know, the fucking sour diesel back. It's it's one of the best. 
and I just figured it'd be like cool with the terps of the Durban mixed in with those and uh, I did mess with it but you know I don't put too much value in it the seeds are sitting there I never thought about cracking them I'd give them to anybody or something if somebody wanted to play with it because I'm not uh, I'm not thinking it's helping the the genetics at all yeah okay so touching on that topic how important is it in your mind for a breeder to give away seeds and i guess specifically when they're kind of starting out do you feel like that's a part of paying your dues yeah that should be um, a good way to build a um, you know a clientele and uh, you make a lot of friends out of it i'll tell you that much and you get a lot more love back than you would ever think so it's a it's a real good thing as an extension of that idea, what would be your advice for someone who's just starting out, wants to kind of get a bit more established in terms of a breeder? I would say do their homework and get um, a line or, or, or collect genetics that can be advanced and can go somewhere, not just another, uh, another polyhybrid that is multi-generational polyhybrid they're uh, they're actually at a point of a bottleneck so tight right now with 10 years of that going on that uh, a new breeder should gear up and uh, try to select something that is unique and different if it can be done and uh, if not you're just jumping on the bandwagon with everybody else you're going to be left in the dust because it's been done 10,000 times and as kind of a final thought to wrap this topic up What's your thoughts on the exponential rise in breeders we see collectively within the community? Oh, I don't know. Everybody has the right to breed. So um, if everybody had the same goals, it would be uh, it'd be a huge advantage. But um, that's never going to happen. So uh, we are humans and we are all like um, on our own path. So... I see it going, uh, you know, between corporate and uh, maybe trademarking and uh, that the way it could go that direction. I'd rather see independent people doing it and just everybody do it at that point. Yeah, definitely. So what type of breeders would you like to work with going forward? Just the guys that I work with right now, librarians that um, they paid their dues and they were there at the time uh, and uh, they put in their, you know, 100% to get us where we are right now. That's people that I value the most, old heads and people that uh, saw the value, you know, 50 years ago. And then all the people with heart. That's all. I don't, I don't need to. Uh, I work for a living, and you know I could retire any time. I don't give a shit uh, about trying to make a bunch of money because I've worked a steady day job. You know that old saying, "Don't quit your day job." Well, I'm fucking August of uh, August of this year is like thirty four years working down there. So uh, I've always had a different view than everybody else. People are growing and selling their buds i've never sold my buds i did i I might sell enough to cover a light bill but i grew for myself and only to further my genetics and that was my only mindset for 30 and 35 years so um i don't think the same way everybody else thinks 
But I'd go with anybody with heart, Mean Gene, Dirt Farmer, um, Dynasty, Mephestos. These are all people that are like, they got your back. And uh, there's a shitload of them, way too many to mention. I would, I would hurt, I, I'd be a total ass if I didn't just come up with 20 of them right now. Because they're all like, I want to work with every one of them because they're just good people. Yeah, certainly. It's almost one of those things where you don't want to leave anyone out. But something I do want to greatly echo the sentiment you just expressed is, especially in Australia, please, guys, have a day job. You know, it, don't make this your full-time gig because, frankly, you're going to have to compromise things to make money instead of following the passion. And I think that's where the best results come from when you're pursuing passion and not necessity-based things. But to get back on track... I wanted to quickly ask you, what land race is your favorite, and do you have any plans to work with it going forward? I would have to say Ty because it's that it's just that one crazy ass good memory, and um, I know the potential that's there, and I'm at a point where uh, I've been offered so many things, and I've passed up on opportunities I should have took up, and I do have a shitload of um, you know good land race and. Uh, Definitely need to dig into a bunch of it, but I would say Thai is what I would try. I've tried really cool things and might dig. I've got some 77 Himalayan that's single-stocked sativa, and it's uh, one of the few single stocks that I've been able to come across except NL1, and it's a sativa too. So that's one thing that I think is pretty unique. Uh, and uh, I like to, I like those unique um, genetics. Uh, Stray Fox made up some... Uh, he used black affy, I think, which which was Bodie's and um, uh, Iraqi indica. And when I grew that out, it was all like thirteen finger fan leaves with single stock growth and super dominant. So those are the things that I want to work with right there. Yeah. Okay. And generally speaking, would you consider yourself more of an indica or a sativa guy? You know, I'd probably say fifty uh, fifty because. I like knockdown, drag out um, indicas, but they're not going to let you get anything done. You better have a a fucking couch to nap on or a, a four shot espresso waiting after you smoke some Mac, you know, because uh, you're not going to be doing a whole lot. You smoke some chocolope or my uh, tropolope, that that uh, space gel and chocolope, some things like that. You be way ripping ass high and still get everything done. And then maybe uh, sing a little bit and (laughs) groove to the music a little more. I love it. Sounds right up my alley. So it's it's funny you mentioned that, um, the Mac, you know. It's interesting because Mac's not only like the flavor of the month, but, you know, there's that kind of story of, well, not really a story, but there's the incidents of you you're not only collecting like a really impressive amount of pollen, but you know, you kind of sent it out far and far and wide, which in my opinion, really quite noble. And our buddy organically enhanced here in Australia, even he managed to make some crosses with that pollen. So I guess my question is what made you decide to share it? Because, you know, it's such high demand and, um, you know, the explosive popularity of cap is, you know, just, you can't even deny it at the moment. So what's your thoughts on the Mac and why did you decide to share the pollen with people? That's super cool you brought that up for a couple of reasons I did that because I had already been in contact with Mac, I mean Cap, and uh, I wasn't going to buy no, I mean, it's, 
I've never been in a rec store. I'll, I'll kind of go down this road. I've never been in a rec store up here or in any other place. And I, I have bought seeds. Like I did, I bought, you know, the platinum huckleberry uh, from uh, a seed bank. And then I bought, I, I might have bought a dozen packs of seeds, but I've been given maybe a thousand packs of seeds from the best breeders in the world. And it's the top of their line or it's the best stash. And, uh, that right there is like so heartfelt. So, uh, when I seen how cap was given that away and it already run for a year and a half, fuck and talk about year of the Mac. Right. I, I was kind of like a little bit spiteful and I was like, uh, I got it given to me and I figured I'd breed with it and offer any extra. So I, I ended up, you know, putting a shout out to locals only. And I ended up getting hit up by everybody in the world. I sent that to Thailand, India, Australia, Canada, um, I think nine, uh, eight or nine countries I sent that to and then sent it to a dozen places in America because I had like 20 grams of the of the pollen. It was crazy wanting to dump pollen. And I figured, I was being a wise-ass, I put a post up said um, end of the year of the Mac or something, just giving it out and people are going, there always has to be that one guy that has to ruin everything good. And I was like, you know, if you ain't had your run with Mac at this point, fuck I mean, it's for free. Anybody can get it for free, um, the main cut. So I thought, because everybody was going, man, I'll never, ever get in line. You have to get on his list, and you have to wait and wait if you're lucky enough to ever get it or get in line at an event that he might release something. And they just go, I'll never, ever see it in our lifetime over here, and I'd love to try it. And I was like, you know what? If you're not the guy that would help out those people, you're a dick. I don't care. Uh, and shit, I think I lost my ass sending that out. It's like 30, 40 bucks a pack to send international, even if it's pollen, you know. But whether I got love back or not on it, I uh, I figured I'd, I'd help them people out. Unless it was like going to India and getting bread to, you know, land race shit. But they, they promised me they're keeping it for their own personal, you know, collection because they can never get their hands on the Mac. It, it's certainly one of those very sought after ones with that being said though you know we see things like the gmo having run its course and the skittles and even mac appears to be kind of reaching the end of its life cycle what's your prediction for the newest flavor of the month and would you ever try to kind of get ahead of the curve and cash in on the correct prediction you know i don't think i care to ever chase a dollar i would uh, i'd rather go fishing and uh I, I I think what the next biggest thing is is going to be exotics flavors. Um, some of the Spice Island type of flavors, man. If we could ever get a cinnamon girl back, or some of the Polynesian flavors, there's some really good spicy nutmeg flavors. And uh, another one I would be nuts about and uh, passion fruits and uh, Hawaiian exotic uh, fruits. And I do believe there's going to be a huge resurgence of blueberry. I mean, orange is so roadkill, run over and burnt out. Some people still dig the turf, but, uh, you know, it was orange and then it was lemon. And uh, I still really dig the lemon tree, something fierce. I'm growing like lemon ice pucker, and it's like a quarter of the good what uh, the lemon tree is. And then I've heard the lemon royale from Swamp Boys is like, off the hook good so i'm super tempted to uh you know check that out but i think i would love to get ahead of the game and the curve and produce passion fruit or any of the guava something that's new and exotic not just the um flipping cookie 
you know what? There's a hundred cookie crosses, and you taste the cookie in every one of them, and it's so fucking blah. I mean, I was turning people on that never seen it before, and they go, "Is that the same as that other one that we just tried?" I said, "Well, it's half the same," and then the next would be the same answer. It's half the same. It's because I had like a whole jar after jar of of cookie crosses. It's it's uh that's nuts. I want some flavors back. Cat piss and. Uh, I've never had a ton of sours, but I do like some sours. Chris Barnes, who uh, he's the front man for uh, Six Feet Under. You 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 know who that is? Yeah, definitely, I've heard of them. Yeah, he's a he's like an extremely cool cat. I mean, he's extreme in the in his uh, music lifestyle and and persona and stuff. But he's the most humble and and uh, good guy in the world. He grows this killer uh, blueberry headband. He calls it BHB. 666 which is um beyond hellbound 666 i sent him my best uh nine percent uh tested at the lab skunk cabbage pollen and he knocked his 666 up and made the 777 and uh, i guess that's also symbol for heaven and hell which i don't follow any of that mystical shit or know about it so much but yeah me and chris barnes are friends and now his blueberry headband i love it it's a killer sour and uh it's like 27%. It, it's uh, got lots of color. So I'd like to get into some uh, sours and uh, mixed turks too. I want to have um, a front of one flavor and heavy back of another. But I think all weed should have equal alpha and beta terpenes. If you cannot produce this, quit growing weed. Definitely. That diversity within terpenes is huge. You you said the golden words in the midst of a description. You said uh, orange has been ran over. It's it's the roadkill. I've got to ask about it. Do you have any experiences with the roadkill skunk? Um, we didn't ever call it roadkill, but we had a shitload of skunk because we bought you know big skunk from uh, from Sensi was half real skunk, and whether some were sweet phenos, there was still a quarter of them were skunk phenos. And then in 91, we bought the super skunk. So super skunk to me to this day is still the, um, the only plant I think you can go back to that has the old, what people call roadkill skunk, but true skunk. I call it true skunk, but yes, I have old genetics. It's crazy as shit how I might have old genetics, but I've got original, uh, you know, uh, super, dank ass true skunks uh super skunk male so i'm going to try to get together with with people like i think farmer joe 420 i think is on uh, instagram uh, he has a, he has an 87 super skunk and he has males but you know i'm kind of known for my males so um we're gonna try to bring out more skunk but i got a half a dozen skunks that are i've got a big skunk that's true skunk i've got the super skunk that's true skunk i've got a matanuska bx that's true skunk i've got an ohawken big skunk that's true skunk and they're all males which is amazing because you can rub the male at any time and get that true skunk hit i just have my wife smell it and she either hits me with ooh, and she's she's like very put off by it or she just says i don't know very strong marijuana <laughs> at that point i hit it right on the head at that point it's like thank you give her a kiss and it's like rally off to my happy point and do a dance you know <laughs> I, I love scoring the shit that will turn her nose that's that's a great description so 
while we're kind of on the skunk topic, tell us a little bit about your skunk cabbage or quabbage, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah, it's cabbage, but everybody in the world's gonna call it quabbage. I, it's a funny thing, so I just let them let them be, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just um, crazy training chocolate, but it's off the hook. It puts it's like if you were to breed the ninety one white, and it puts white on anything. This fucker will put white on anything, but it uh, it has really rotten uh, skunky terps. Plus, because there's a plant called skunk cabbage that's up here, real prevalent, and it's the first thing that grows in the summer, and it produces its own heat, and melts the snowbank around it, and then the bears come along, and then the deer and the bear. We have we have like implanted deer that have made it up here since uh, it's been ninety years or eighty years they've been up here. But um, first thing they can find to eat is that skunk cabbage, but it melts its own way out of a snowbank from producing its own fire. So when we, you know, kind of put that together, the fire side of it and uh, the rankness of it, people actually smell skunk cabbage and have come back and told me, is that how you name that? And it's like, that is half of why I named it that. Yes, I didn't know that Tom Hill had a skunk cabbage. So just embarrassing for me to, you know, call it that for years and then find out i seen like Bean Hoarder or something that has like all these Tom Hill things. And it's like, oh, skunk cabbage, I'm an idiot. But that's why I changed it with the Q because it was out of Crazy Train from the TGA side of it. And uh, I, I've separated it that way. But uh, it's my go-to. If I want to get stoned, you know, if I'm smoking 15%, this, that, and the other all day long, and I can take three hits of that and it'll override all 15 joints of the 15 percent but it's it's probably my uh my cannabinoid system my endocannabinol system is probably just geared up for that turf cross and i did have the highest in-state turf test ever uh, about three or four years ago and also i was told in canada at the biggest lab up there it's hit the third highest terpene content uh um terpene numbers on, on the biggest lab up there but, you know, saying that doesn't make a lot of sense because Canada's five or six or seven provinces and fucking one million labs. So, yeah, but I was told by somebody it hit, it hit top three out of the biggest lab up there. So, wow, very impressive. It got some funk to it. Uh, and I kind of just dig it. It's something that I probably won't ever go without. I've sent it to people like a bunch of people. I gave it to Bodie and a, um, I think Stray and Doc and might have give it to me and gene i know i gave it to pharmacy factory and i give it to ever i don't care i don't care if you like it or hate it whatever throw it away grow it don't matter but it hits me just right yeah okay sounds like that one which is hopefully vibing with more people than just you with that being said what's your favorite strain that often maybe gets a bit of hate or just doesn't get as much love uh, from other people shit i don't know because the ones that everybody uh um, you know, you get you get slapped in the face, or a um, lot of lot of memes and shit about AJ Sour Diesel, and a uh, lot of memes and you know backhands from uh, uh, the Blue Dream. And uh, I've never smoked any of the real shit, so I have no idea uh, what's good and people call bad or give a bad rap to. I uh, I kind of only smoke my own flower. Yeah, okay. I've never been to that. Sorry, I've never been to that wreck thing. And uh, you know, they have like gummy bears up here. Somebody smoked that with me. It's a thirty-one percent local thing at the wreck market, and somebody's growing it in their home deal. The guy that gave it to the wreck or whatever, and 
and I just thought it was such poor weed, so I don't know. I'm a picky-ass dick, and I like my own weed. No, it sounds like a man after my own heart. I can certainly relate to that. So how do you like to make your concentrates? A little bit of Keef on top of a bong hit, or are you more of like a BHO and concentrates type of guy? You know, near zero uh, concentrates. I make a lot of Keef, a shitload, because, well, I might, like even on the TK NL5, this last run that I seeded out, 16... 16 or 17 different strains and every bit of it went to that pollen and uh, I had no flower at all so all I had was uh, you know keef after I've de-shucked it I can separate the keef and then the uh, only thing I do with it is just put it on a rosin press so um, low low uh, heat rosin at about uh, 65 Celsius which is I think 160 or something on Fahrenheit and uh, just press it and I have, I have, uh, I don't smoke a shitload of concentrates, and never, ever, really, ever smoke BHO. I'll smoke some EHO, and people up here kind of tag me for that, and people go, "I know you. I've heard you don't do no BHO or whatever. What? This is real good. Now come and bring me a, a sample, which is real cool, but I hardly ever would ever smoke it. And EHO tends to be better, but uh, I have about a half a pound of rosin at all points in time, just because I squish all of the keef. It's very common to get eight ounce jars of keeper two at a time, you know. And then what are you going to do with it? You either have to make EHO, BHO, or some rosin. And to me, rosin's wide spectrum and uh, a little bit better, way better high, I think. Yeah, definitely. So, in terms of where the market's heading towards the end of last year, we saw the rise of the uh, the very controversial one hundred dollar eights from Big Al. And how do you feel like this affects the market? Do you feel like there's a place within the market for the ultra-premium products and the, the high-end consumers? Or do you feel like the fact that cannabis has this medicinal component to it that we shouldn't allow things to creep up like that? Oh, I see both sides of that, uh, that thing. There's people that want to feel special and actually have, you know, liquid uh, assets. <laughs> Our dumb bulldogs are gonna go off, <laughs> um, but um, I don't think it's certainly not good for the normal guy. I think it's unfair for the uh, the, the grower because they're getting hammered on the low end of it, and then it's like rubbing it in their face. You know, if you can get a hundred dollars for an eighth, and and you're paying five hundred for a pound, it's not right. Yeah, it, it, it puts an interesting spin on like what does the grower get out? Because I mean, Big Al, to his credit, used to be a grower, but I believe for the most part now he's actually more of a kind of like a middleman. I think there's a, you know, there's a situation for everything because uh, we're so diverse as humans. There's uh, there's people in the world who would never consider, they never consider, um, you know, first world problems like that. So... If you look at the whole scheme of things, everybody has a right to do what they want. And if there's somebody that there's a if there's a need, fill the void. The as much as I may have some personal questions about the situation, I just my mind immediately always wanders to the fact that you know there are people who pay hundreds of thousand dollars for cars, and you know they, people don't criticize that. And so I feel like there's got to be some uh, congruency and consistency within within our thought process at least 
yeah, you you won't see anybody giving somebody grief over that car. They're going to give them a hundred percent of congratulations that they made it to that point, right? And not not even be butthurt over it or jealous, unless it's your hard work from your brow sweat that uh, got that car for your boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's maybe a whole another conversation in itself. So, one last thing I wanted to bring up before we jump onto some fishing stuff because we're going to get there. Don't worry. After this one, I noticed on your feed you got some Dungeon Vault genetics. I'm a big fan of Eric and Dungeon Vault genetics. What are you most looking looking forward to popping out of those seeds? And do you have any experience with brandy wine, or more specifically the pink champagne, which is the mother of it? Another really good questions. You're nailing it because um, I had not known him too long. I I met him through the catalogs. I sent him catalogs uh, because I think his genetics stood stood up for themselves. I didn't hear anybody um, except maybe some controversy. You know, everybody gonna whatever your background is, or somebody always butthurt. So I I uh, knew through Falconer that um, he had some stand up shit, and he straight up sent me like maybe you couple packs of a bunch of stuff and i i um i know that the humble pie was going to be real good and uh, i had no this is how backwoods and or are like so old school i didn't know that grandpa's breath was granddaddy purple i had to listen to your interview with him to find out the history of dungeon vault genetic and I'd already met him and talked to him, and um, he's given me his genetics. I had no idea what it was because I don't follow. If there's something that I, I am not gonna have a route, a planned route, you know, to go down myself, I can't absorb that shit at this point in my life. I have very little room left in my brain for new information, so I'm not gonna absorb all um, knowledge. I just kind of keep it within a right in my view. And uh, he's a good guy, and I think it's. Um, a really good thing that he's got going on and keeping it straight. I know a couple of my testers have grown this stuff out. And they brought me the smoke. It's really good. I did just recently send him uh, multiple TKNL5s, uh, the F2 of the TKNL5 Haze, the, uh, my best purple to the TKNL5 Haze because I want him to experience you know, another 100% view of purple and then get his dick just knocked straight into the dirt. Because <laughs> it's uh, it, it's it's something else. I'm not even gonna beat it. Divorce on the shit. If you if you fucking buy it and trust me, you have it. If you don't, then it's a story. Yeah, totally, totally. So, getting to some of the more light-hearted stuff I've been promising for a minute. Let's talk about fishing. You know, you do a lot of fishing. I've even seen a few of the odd photos of maybe hunting here and there. How does cannabis interact with these things? Do you like to do them while sober, or is it just like the perfect time to get high for you? I am a total weed-aholic. So, I, I can tell you the days that I didn't get high. Um to tell you the truth in 1985 from monday the first to friday the fifth i did not get high i i quit smoking pot i was like a teenager i was fed up with it and then uh, my brother or my good good friend's brother comes back from the peace corps with a on friday night he comes back thursday night and uh gives him some tie bud from whatever country he was in and fucker calls me up Friday tells me he's got this tie bud it's like okay I'm on my way over man I was right back to smoke and I quit for five days in 85 and uh, 
there was another time I flew in and uh, we're moose hunting in in, in uh, 98. And uh, as I see the plane take off, I'm getting ready to roll our celebratory joint and I'm digging around and there's no fucking weed. I left, you know, a week's worth of weed. And it's like, holy shit, man. Oh, it's going to be a whole week. I'm going to be over here and shit. That'd be the two times in my life I ain't smoked weed. I, I did get, I did get, I can't say that too, because I almost died once. I was like, you know, 106 and a half fever. I had uh, something, it was a uh, staph infection on my epiglottis. That's a little flap in the back of your throat, right? It uh, It's 30% uh, survivability rate if you get this. So I waited to the last minute like, like I normally would, and I went in almost dead. I'd already passed out, and I woke back up alive. So I went to the hospital. And they innovated me and put me on uh, anesthetization for like four days. So there was another four days I didn't smoke weed, but I didn't have no choice. Yeah, wow. And and what type of fishing and hunting do you like to do most? <laughs> you know, I, I, I like to hunt just about everything, but our, our opportunities are limited. We try to fill our freezer on uh, moose and deer, so we hunt... Uh, I don't do a lot of bird hunting because it's not as uh, much opportunity up here. If I had a lot of upland game bird, I'd do that a lot more. We only have like a couple. We have a grouse and a spruce hen, and I'll do that too. I love bird hunting, but uh, we deer hunt, moose hunt, a little bit of bird hunt, but fishing, we just get whatever comes up as soon as we can get it. I would have been, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I would have be out right now getting crab because uh, federal crabbing for subsistence crabbing goes from October 15th to uh, March 31st. So they let us just, as soon as the weather has freezing spray and you're going to die trying to get this substance, uh, your your subsistence crab, it's the weather just won't let you get it. But right now there's a little bit of a break the last three weeks, but a storm came through just now and uh, it's 10 foot in the ocean with snow. And and we'd be out right now because my my partner went out last weekend and caught a fifteen pound king crab. He caught a bunch of littler ones, but he caught a fifteen pound king crab. I mean that that is where you want to be. Yeah, wow, that's really impressive. And so the other thing I noticed from your feed is that you know you appear to have a little bit of a sweet tooth. So tell me, what's your favorite candy? I am a a kind of a. Uh, dessert kind of guy and sweet tooth I don't know but jelly uh, good good gummies uh, from European countries tend to be very good they don't have a lot of um, they have no corn syrup they don't have any preservatives so all gummies from every country I've ever had minus like America are, are pretty good fresh gummies are a big thing you can go from place to place and there's like you know shops that are specializing in it so I've had my friend Jolly Glass send me back, uh, you know, a ton of stuff from Spanibus, and I've had a couple of friends that hooked me up like that. So, but I, I, I got a sweet tooth. You got that right. We're only here once, so uh, better take advantage of whatever you're given. And so, does that extend into edibles, or purely just a, you know, a sober confectionery type of deal? Edibles hit me like a uh, ton of bricks. So. Um, I'm big time into edibles because I love good edibles, but I generally would make like uh, virgin coconut oil and um, 
maybe one jar of virgin coconut oil, a big size jar, and a half a pound of like uh, XJ13 Pennywise is a 9 to 12% uh, CBD. And I would take all that flour and put it in, uh, you know, hydrate it so you don't get no chlorophyll. After it's dried, I'd rehydrate it and then uh, just melt off all the keef and make some real good can of coconut oil. And then uh, my other biggest thing is our we berry pick in Prince Williamstown where I fish a lot. There are there's a there's a lot of berries, cloud berries. Um, um, there's black currant. There's another type of a black currant, and there's blueberry and there's salmon berry. So I can and then in my yard, it, generally I have a lot of berry bushes. So I will pick about fifty pounds of wild berry every year and freeze it. And sometimes more than fifty pounds. I might get. I might get. Um, sometimes way more. Shit, buckets and buckets of it. But I'll make uh, natural wildberry syrup and put my rosin from all of the rosin that I make from kefir, and just make a wide spectrum of natural wildberry syrup. And I'm kind of famous for it now. So I I do like that as an edible. But I would promote uh, anybody that wants edible green goddess. Uh, Delights is the best edible producer that I've come across. She's a friend of mine, and she makes gummies that, uh, wicked cherry gummies, wicked uh, green apple, or wicked watermelon, wicked pineapple, or they have, uh, you know, jolly ropes. They won the the uh, mid uh, the East the New England High Times Cup last year with their blue raspberry funk juice, and they're famous for their funk juice. And uh, their products, yesterday I had a friend come by and said he doesn't get high on edibles, and man, I instantly broke out a 500 milligram bottle of the funk juice and said, try this tonight. I had him eat a 200 milligram Jolly Rope, and then we split a package of the Wicked uh, wicked Watermelon uh, gummies. And they taste so good as a candy that you're not going to stop eating them. My boss is 60, almost 70-year-old Korean, and a fucker, he'll start eating them and then... Uh, could it taste like candy and then you know be hammered shortly after even though uh, they're only 100 milligram packages uh, they're 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 they've got it down just right I've, I've probably never had a better edible uh no question 100 milligrams would definitely put my dick in the dirt so my question though out of all the meat you hunt or just everything in general what's your favorite food Wow, um, I love halibut, but I uh, there is really no favorite food because we get all unlimited amount of spot shrimp like every Friday night, and uh, that's a pretty pretty premium thing. No matter where you're at, cold water shrimp is probably one of the best things in the world, and uh, good fish, but good moose meat or a goat, a, a mountain goat. Man, that stuff is the mildest, best tasting. I mean, they live on cliffs, and you wouldn't think that they'd be edible because a, a barnyard billy goat tastes like grass and piss, and it's harsh, man. These things got a big-ass nasty set of balls on them, and they're super mature. They're solid muscle, but it's like fork tender, mildest meat in the world, milder than veal. And, uh, shit, that, that stuff, besides this, it's impossible to get. So uh, you put all that together, I'd say um, mountain goat. Doll sheep might be next too. You got to climb five, six thousand feet, and uh, they can see for miles. Man, you're just not going to get one. So when you do, 
one of the best flavored animals in the world of, of anything I've ever had. And uh, the uh, accomplishment of it makes it taste even twice that good. Hell yeah, goat curry is where it's at. So, to move on to our next subject, many people, and you've mentioned it a few times, probably familiar with you as being the guy with the old school seed magazine collections. So, how did this collection initially begin? I know that Bodie's mentioned in the past he's traded you some magazines, and I'm certainly grateful to have a few copies from you, but how did this all originate? It just started because we were buying seeds from the Sensi Seed Bank and SSSC. I just had my original catalogs from 89, 90, and 91. And 30 years later, I didn't really look at them. And uh, when I finally did look at them, I was just going, holy shit, they're in perfect shape. And it was like reliving glory days really hard. And, uh, oh, my God, every feeling you ever had came back the the sending off your 60 bucks and waiting three months and paranoia like crazy like like we're all going to go to prison over this damn package of seeds and we're all pooling our money together you know for not, not one of us had enough money to actually buy seeds back then it's funnier than shit so when i saved them and realized how how cool it was uh i kind of just looked for more and um saw that bodie had a bunch of them his friend was a photographer for the 85 catalog and he had a dozen uncirculated uh copies and he gives me a brand new uncirculated copy and it's like man that guy i mean what can you say about him but um he'll go out of his way to make you happy and and it's like the coolest guy and i i bummed his collection he's that good of a guy i just like don't know him, don't know him at all i just like i'd love to copy him if he could trust me with him send him to me and he went over to Mexico. That's when he went down to Mexico with Strand Ock. And he, has, he, he sent his wife to the post to send him to me after he left. And she, sure enough, she, she, I got him in the mail. was able to copy him. And I gave him back to him at Emerald in 17. And, um, you know, thanked him a hundred times. I mean, it's such a valuable history uh, sitting in your hands. And you can just, cater, it's all categorized. And you can just look it up. Even the information that's in there is still viable today. Yeah, definitely. There's nothing I get more of a kick out of than going back and looking at some of the strains and being like, oh, this is the exact stock Skelly came from. Well, their technical information on growing was immense. It was like um, at least the SSSCs, uh, they have a mini book in there. They get more technical than I ever wanted to for 30 years. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, a huge shout out to Steve and Olivia. They're two amazing people who everyone in the community loves. So... Next one I wanted to ask you about. What do you feel is the future for the Emerald Cup? Can we expect to see you there this December or are you considering going elsewhere? The, the general sentiment last year is that things felt a little different. Would you agree with that? Things felt a lot different from the first Emerald Cup and they're 100% different than the original Emerald Cup. So, it, it, it's a, you know, it's evolved and um, I and Alaska in general, we had our very first time ever real event, which was a high times cup up here this year. And it was like no public display of cannabis, no smoking of cannabis, no nothing. And it was so shitty and harsh that it was like the biggest turnoff in the world. So in my view, Emerald was 100% success, even though it wasn't the same as it was in prior years. 
you know, the feeling is still right there. And as long as people are still able to relay their message, which I did see a lot of that, you know, we were right there in that circle of love the whole time. And um, you still can be right there with the people that really mean something in this industry and the in doing right for the community so in that sense emerald was successful did people make as much money no i don't think so i know dungeon vault uh his dad died that morning that saturday morning and uh, he held a a booth there and ten thousand dollars he didn't want to just piss it away or he would have just walked away from the whole thing but he said he covered his bases and said it was worth it so you know there's an opinion right there Actually, I feel a little bad, Eric, if you listen to this. I had no idea, man. I spoke to you that day and I feel bad for not saying anything about it. But yeah, you know, you you hit it on the head, right? I remember you were kind of out front, um, the booth I was at. There was an awesome little crew there. Like it was you, Bob Hemphill, Skunk VA, Duke, just every name you could think of, just kind of congregate and have little chats out the front. And it was kind of surreal. You just sit there and to just be like, this is this is it right here. This is the little circle you want to be in. It, it truly was. I felt, um, I felt honored to be able to stand there with every one of those guys, including you. So um, to me... I think it's still about um, community and uh, everybody that was there. That That's the sentiment, 100%. They're not one of those guys that didn't have each other's back. Yeah, definitely, and as well as having the community's back, which is the big part, I think, which linked us all. That, too. It's, um, it's a different world, boy. I, I mean, 10 and 15 and 20 years, every single th- everything that's gone by, it's been just a crazy thing world where uh, as much as separation is, or is right now with uh, you know people trying to get greedy and stuff there's just as much uh, ties being made and I think it made the community a lot stronger I and mean, it's amazing definitely definitely so getting towards our little quick fire questions the last question or two before those though I wanted to quickly ask what's your feeling about the rise of the vape pen I'm not sure if you've seen the South Park episode mocking it it's pretty funny but um, essentially how do you feel they affect the community in the sense that they're, they're trying to bridge the gap between like casual consumer and the general market do you feel though they're having more of a detrimental effect than a beneficial effect overall you know, you're right. It's it's a way to bridge, um, you know, complete different um, generations. There's good things about them and bad things about them. It's funny that they got names like, you know, Pussy Stick and Douche Flute. And uh, the, the people that, um, it's a different generation that tends to use them. It's a convenient type of thing. I can't say I haven't used them. Uh, my buddy Falconer bought one of the cookie pens, which was... Uh, I guess we're fillable only locally, so he had it engraved with his name and just tossed to some bitch when it ran out. But, you know, it was a very good product, I thought, and uh, I don't see it being a horrible thing. I'm, I'm so neutral about everything that um, there's good things in it and there's bad things in it. I don't like the heavy metals, cheap-ass Chinese, uh, you know, materials being made and uh, untested shitty products being put into it. That is where I have problems with the whole thing. So how do you feel about the kind of the introduction of the non-cannabis derived terpenes to these concentrates or even the reintroduction of them after they've been separated out? I am a big fan of cannabis terpenes. I don't care um, if you put them back in, do them, uh, 
you know, as a aromatherapy or uh, whatever, but I'm not a fan of vegetable and fruit derived herbs being added to anything. Yeah. You know, uh, you can get real like terpenes for flavor and add it to your brewing supply, and it's a whole different thing. There's a hundreds of terpenes that are just straight up natu- 100% natural terpenes just in liquid form ready to go back into anything you're brewing. And um, it's a 100% good thing, but I don't view marijuana being flavored. We've recently had uh, terpene tests at the lab that I'm, you know, I go through and I'm friends with the workers there. Uh, they have eight plus percent terpenes being tested at that lab with, you know, only a half a dozen terpenes being tested. And it's an impossibility. And it tells you these people are only trying to, they're doing whatever they can to sell the wreckweed. And uh, it's, it's a very wrong thing. Yeah, certainly. When you when you initially said eight percent, I was like, "What?" Um, but but yeah, I guess it makes sense, right? They're they're trying to game the system. Yeah, and if um, you know, it it kind of boils down to where it's uh, with people smoking electronic uh, cigarettes, the flavors have been um, you know so pussified that everybody's sucking on stuff that i mean i'll walk through cloud of it it actually smells good to me and they're actually just getting their nicotine so it makes it so much less offensive than a cigarette but um you know you still got to deal with um other things with it i don't do i don't think it's the smartest thing to breathe glycol or glycerin or any of that shit so uh i'm like a natural flower guy my god you can't really i don't know how old school i am but it goes right straight back to i want a damn joint yeah, definitely. I I can't go past the cheeky bong hit. Yeah, that too. I I mean I love right before you called. I I scrubbed my bong out with alcohol and filled it with nice cold water, and it's like, oh man, I was smoking that purple um, Wookie V two, and um, you know it's real unique purple profiles, different than other ones. Man, it, there's nothing like that flavor. You're altering it with. Uh, Five different forms of distillation and then reconfiguring it to your taste that's good for you but that's not good for me yeah no i can agree with that sentiment so that brings us to our last few questions which are our kind of quick fire questions so first one up what's your favorite strain of all time it's one that nobody knows about it's waco just a um, just a local strain but everybody that ever knew of Waco will agree. And what do you suspect is the genetics behind that one? Uh, NL5 Hayes. Haha, it pops its head up again. So, flip side of the spectrum, what's your least favorite strain of all time? Oh my God, that's so easy. It's um, Dynafem Purple Power. Fuck, a friend of mine, he, he just thought it'd be smart to grow fems about 15 10 15 years ago and it was a clandestine grow basically his wife didn't want him to grow he dug out the dug out the basement under the house and he gets that shit and man it was poor weed it was dark purple or real pretty purple lots of uh violet and magenta and then a lot of dark purple too but it was a no high pig and it tasted like shitty purple weed yeah, I think we've all had uh, an experience or two like that. 
So, what would be your desert island strains? You can take three with you. What would they be? Huh. Um, uh, purple Hindu Kush that I got from uh, the Nature Farm. It, it's 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 really the one, and uh, I would say TKNO five haze, the one that we are just now digging through. And for the other one, it's going to have to be that my old dream time chocolate high that uh, you know truly had me going I would say the high was so high that it could have been damn opium dipped you know but I was still you know 12 so but uh, there are no highs like that anywhere in the world today except opium <laughs> yeah wow definitely 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 so uh, next question is if you could only recommend one of your strains for someone to go out or let's say give them a packet just so that it's it's there in their hands which one pack would you be giving to people right now I would go with the TKN05 uh, Haze F2 but until I you know just rediscovered that I would have said skunk cabbage I gave out over 3,000 seeds of it hundreds of packs of it and then sold hundreds of packs and I've never had one person ever say bad about it so um, pretty damn good one hell yeah sounds like a solid one so if you could go back in time to any place anywhere throughout history to presumably collect some land race seeds where would you be heading you know this tell me you tell me because you know the answer going to get some tie well It'll be there, but I'm going to the castle, right to the Cannabis Castle. Ah. You, look at, you look at the collection at that point in time, what was available to the layman. Oh, my God. There's like a hundred years worth of work done waiting for you. Yeah, definitely, definitely go uh, steal Neville's collection. Yeah, because you're going to hit it on every note. Including the, uh, you know, G13 in its purest form and just like everything in its purest form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like a plan. I will, uh, I would join you on that one. So, yeah, if we can get a time machine, um, we're going there first. Yeah, I love it. So, what are you most excited about that's going to come from the community in the near future as far as you can tell? I guess just the um, overall uh, legislation that's being put in for nationwide legalization. I don't think it's fair for people that live in Arkansas and um, Texas and um, Georgia and the uh, Nebraska. You know, there's anti-states that it's not fair at all for medicinal users, uh, especially them. But and it's a super legitimate thing. They are they're treating them as outcasts and uh, heavy drug users and won't give them an opportunity to, uh, you know, get any relief from something that's going to help them without, you know, have adverse effects to anybody. It's going to be a good biomass producer and help the earth as opposed to, you know, destroying the earth. So um, the movement should spread. I don't like the idea of Marlboro, you know, producing packs of, marijuana cigarettes and then that's going to be the mainstream thing would be like you know concentrate pens and i like it 
my dream would be that um, have both sides available, like what we do up here. We're able to still have a medical permit up here, and I can grow with my wife. I can have 60 plants. I can have a six-plant count plus a 24-plant extended medical count, and she can also. So if you could have a happy medium in all the states of, you know, say, I'd like to see 12 plants because they're harsh now going down to six and three and then completely blocking in other places. So the, the legalization movement is bound to happen and the decriminalization and de rescheduling of cannabis uh, from schedule one, that is going to be the biggest and best thing in the cannabis movement. It, it might, you know, help out corporate way more than it'll help out the mom and pop, but um, it'll give relief to the people that couldn't get it. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. So, final question for the interview. Can we expect to ever see your seeds available via some seed banks, kind of more commercially available? I'm not against uh, selling through seed banks, but I am still working a nine-to-five job. Even though the earthquake had destroyed the body shop and we're at a uh, low point, we are you know, fixing to go back online. And I don't really want to walk away from what I've done for a very long time. And uh, I will probably uh, pick up a couple seed banks just because I've been offered. And it just makes me have to work harder, though, to make uh, the commitment and keep everything happy. So if I didn't... Uh, so it's either quit working, quit fishing and hunting. Uh, um, and I don't want to... I don't want to do either one of those yet. I like to work crazy, but yeah, I would say, yeah, going to, I'm not, the, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to jump on everything either. So, uh, it's coming, it's coming to the future near you. Hell yeah. So with that being said, did you have any comments or shout outs you wanted to make? To, uh, you, um, all Australians, I think, uh, they're probably the next best people um, next to Alaskans and uh, my partners of 35 years for not ever having a problem with what I've done and said and we've just always been together and uh, my wife of 29 years is probably the only thing that uh, keeps me going Fantastic. What a beautiful sentiment to end it on. So once again, thank you so much, AK Bean Brains, for not only being our friend on the final frontier, but also taking the time to chat to us today. Yes, it was great. I appreciate you, man. Thanks again, everyone, for sticking around to the end. And a big thank you to AK Bean Brains for taking the time to chat with us today. Hope you all enjoyed it. I had fun. Make sure to go fishing sometime soon. And make sure to check out our amazing sponsors, Seeds Here Now. Hit them up for all your seed needs. 420 Australia for that apparel. And Organic Gardening Solutions for all things organic gardening. Big shout out to our friends at Dragonfly Earth Medicine and to all our Patreon supporters. You guys are the MVPs. You're the lifeblood of the show. And I just want to be your friend.
I'll see you guys next one. Thanks for hanging around. I'll see you. <laughs>